horror in the house of sounds here to save the day let's talk about your favorite movies have some laughs and fun then when you're scared of deep dark shadows you won't need to run it's all horror fiction still a scream addiction Spoilers! Spoilers! Warning! My funny valentine, sweet comic valentine, you make me smile with my heart. Hello, horror fans. (laughs) I am Jamie, and with me as always is Brian. Hello! And this is our special Valentine's Day episode. Yay. Happy Valentine's Day, baby. Happy Valentine's Day. I love it. You didn't know that was coming. No. That was a nice surprise. (laughs) Uh, Today we are going to be discussing two movies about love. Aw. And then we have a special Valentine-themed bumps segment. And then we have a bit of a short collection segment this time because we just haven't had a whole lot of time to watch collection movies. We do have some, but it's not going to be as meaty as it usually is, but hell, they might not even be finished with the last episode. That was a really long one. Yeah, we tend to go on. (laughs) So, uh, in order to keep this one moving at a nice clip, we'll jump right into our correspondence. That sound good to you? That is awesome. All right. First up, we have a message from Stephen Scott, and he says, I just got through with your latest. My thoughts on some of the titles and ideas you talked about. Nice. My best movie shockers include the following, in no particular order. Invasion of the Body Snatchers, 1978. Oh, of course. I thought Donald Sutherland escaped, but that shriek he made shocked me. Yeah, that's a great one. It's Yeah, yeah. As a kid, it left me totally shocked. My brother and I were speechless. <laughs> I don't doubt it. I mean, it still gets me today as many times as I've seen it. Yeah. You know, it's just terrifying. Uh, Halloween 1978, mind you, like the previous movie, I was only 11 when I first saw it in the theater with my friend Trevor. We bought a ticket for another movie and snuck into the other auditorium at the NX Movie Theater. Same theater he worked at in high school. The suspense was intense. The whole audience let out a huge sigh when the shape was shot and fell from the floor. We gasped as Loomis looked down and saw the shape missing. The music played and you hear his breathing. Trevor and I were shocked by that ending. Yeah, I wish I could have saw that in a theater for the first time. Because that would have been cool. I mean, there's certain movies I really wish I could have, you know, the first Psycho. Imagine that in a theater. Oh way my back god! In the 60s. I have always lamented that I was too young to see Psycho in the theater. I can only, because what makes that one so cool is the lengths that Hitchcock went to to make sure that that wasn't spoiled for anyone. Yeah, and I love that, and I wish that I could have seen that because I can only imagine what it was like. 
and I couldn't even ask my mom. She was only seven when that movie came out in the theater. <laughs> she, now, even though she was taking me to movies <laughs> much younger than that, I doubt she went to see Psycho at seven. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Trilogy of Terror, the final segment, titled Amelia with the Zuni doll. Again, the ending when Karen Black kneels down, stabbing the floor, then she smiles and shows the teeth. That whole episode is awesome. Oh, it is. But I love that ending. So much so that I actually have an idea that jumps off from that point. Mm -hmm. Sadly, though, the the Richard Matheson estate was not interested in selling me the rights to use it. (sighs) Actually, that was before he died that I contacted them. His agent was kind of a bitch, but anyway. (laughs) I am uh, dealing with... uh rights holders and stuff like that now and it can be a pain in the ass. Uh, He goes on to say about that one, I was 10 when I saw that one late at night at my grandparents' house with my cousin Eric. It scared the shit out of us. Mm -hmm. Uh, The Nolan Batman trilogy. Batman Begins was one of those I liked more. Oh, this is not shocking moments. This is, he we talked about it in the collection. Oh, okay, yeah. Um, Batman Begins was one of those I liked more and more with every rewatch. The Dark Knight was the first I took in a midnight sneak preview and I was blown away. The Dark Knight Rises was okay, but Nolan tried to do way too much, drawing it out too long. I 100% agree. Also, there was not enough Batman. Actually, my favorite Nolan movie is The Prestige, which which is also one of my top favorite movies of all time. The Prestige has one of the, to, to not be a horror film, has one of the most terrifying endings that I've ever seen. This is from Jamie, by the way. <laughs> I mean, I'm, I'm saying this. Uh, I remember the first time I saw that, I just, holy cow. Yeah? That reveal, oh shit. <laughs> I'm like, it just, and then you just start thinking back and then you think about when Michael Caine told him that it was like going home, you know, but then you find out, no, it's not. Yeah. Like, it, it, oh, God. Oh, God. Such a good movie. Yeah. Need to watch that again. It's been a while. I liked Dark Knight of the Scarecrow as well, but have failed to find a really good Scarecrow-based horror movie. Oh, by the way, uh, when we were talking about the Scarecrow movies on the last episode, and I had said that I think there's a remake of Dark Harvest. I couldn't remember if it was Dark Knight of the Scarecrow or Dark Harvest. There is a Dark Harvest coming out this year. Oh, okay. So we get a Scarecrow movie, which I'm excited. I like them. Yeah. The Supernatural TV show had a great episode episode called Scarecrow in season one. Looking forward to your next podcast. Well... So are we. Yes. <laughs> thank you so much. And thank you, as always, for sharing your thoughts on this stuff. I I love hearing from our listeners. Yeah, thank you so much. That was awesome, as always. Next up, we have an email from Lucas. And Lucas says, Hey, Jamie and Brian, I'm dropping in to say a couple things. First, after your last episode, I decided to give The Intruder another watch. I had never seen this movie until about three years ago, and I didn't like it at all. However, after the way you both talked about it, I had to give the movie another shot, and I am glad that I did. Yay! On this watch, I loved the movie so much more. I went from a 1 out of 5 to a 4 out of 5. If I hadn't given it another chance, I'd be missing out big time, so thank you for inspiring a second watch. 
Well, that's awesome. That is exactly what I love to hear. Yeah. You know, with all the movies that we bring forward, I, my favorite thing is when somebody says, hey, I watched this because you, you know, you yeah. recommended it. Or I rewatched it, you know, after hearing you talk about it. And that just makes me so happy. And I'm so glad that you enjoyed it so much. Yeah, I mean, I love that film. Uh, I'm glad you have a deeper appreciation for it. It is pretty basic. I mean, it's just as it's a, a no-thrills slasher as far as the story goes and all that. But the kills are so fun. The camera is so fun. I like the characters. Mm-hmm. I know it's just, just a fun slasher. It is, yeah. He says, second, this past Friday the 13th, I re-listened to your Friday retros. Nice. And I realized that I forgot to chime in. I am an F-13 junkie that was introduced to the franchise because of Jason Lives. My parents were not horror fans, so didn't see this until I was 13 in 1993. I loved it straight away. Nice. After that, I rented the rest of the franchise in proper order, and I've been hooked on the franchise and horror in general ever since. Seems That's like awesome. Friday seems to do that. Yeah. Even today, I, I mean, literally today, I was just going through YouTube and, uh, they happen to mention something about various horror movies and franchises and all that. And they were basically poo-pooing the Friday 13th. You know, they were like, oh, they're fun, but, you know, they're nothing all that special. Or, you know, you know, like, eat a bowl of dicks. I mean. <laughs> what was that? We were watching something the other day. And they were talking about how people give, oh, somebody, shit. They said that people give Friday too much credit for the slasher boom and it rests solely on the sh- on the shoulders of Halloween or something and I was just sitting back there going fuck you yeah. you know <laughs> because yes Friday was a rip off of Halloween but we wouldn't have gotten what we got if it hadn't been for them pushing the boundaries with no. Friday it opened the floodgates for all the slashers to come for good and ill because there was a lot of shit I mean, I love slasher movies, even the bad ones I kind of like, but I am not so delusional where I don't know. There's a lot of bad slashers, uh, especially in the 80s because they were just going nuts with them. Yeah. But there's a lot of good ones, Mm -hmm. and the vast majority of those can be laid directly at the feet of Friday 13th simply because they showed you, hey, you can do this too. And that's what it was. People did not suddenly start making slasher after slasher after slasher because of Halloween. They did it because of Friday the 13th. That's a fact. That's science. Whether you don't like it or not is totally besides a point. That is what happened. I mean, you can say that, yeah, I mean, ultimately, I guess the credit goes to Halloween in that respect because what? Friday was a, a an open ripoff of Halloween. They don't deny it. They they outright state it. Yeah, but... but So we wouldn't have gotten that if we hadn't originally gotten Halloween. But Friday is the one that pushed everyone. That, I don't know, gave everyone the green light. Made everybody go. There's so many people. The whole Quentin Tarantino. Oh, he just rips off other people's movies and make them. That's what artists do. They are inspired by other works of art, and then they reinterpret them themselves. And if they can put their own spin on it, they use their own voice, then that's all you can really ask. The worst ones just copy wholesale. But I mean, for all the people who go... And then deny it. Yeah. For all the people who go, you know, oh, you know, Friday 13th won't exist without Halloween, it's a pretty good 
chance that Halloween wouldn't exist without Black Christmas, and that probably wouldn't re exist without Psycho, and those wouldn't exist without the old Dark House movies, and so on and so forth. You can trace that line all the fucking way back for as long as you want to go. Well, yeah. But, I mean, people think stuff happens in a void, in a vacuum. It's just, there's nothing, and then boom! A slasher movie, and then, oh, everybody copies it. That's not how it happens. Uh, he goes on to say, It's still my favorite of the franchise and one of my all-time favorite movies. It was really a movie that changed my life, and I'm happy that it did. That's all for now. I hope all is well for you both. Till next time. Awesome. Thank you. Yes, thank you, thank you, thank you. I always appreciate the feedback. I love Jason Lives as well. Although if you listened to the Friday Retros, then you already You'll know, know that. that. <laughs> Heading back over to the Facebook group page, we have some comments on the latest episode, uh, which featured Intruder and Scream 4. Mm -hmm. And the first one is from Jason Gray. He says... Hey, Jason. Hey. <laughs> he says, I've always been a big fan of Scream 4. I thought nice. it would have been fun to end it with Jill actually succeeding. Sydney gets a big exit, and if it had led to a Scream 5 at the time, it, it would have been a wild idea to have who everyone in the story saw as the, quote, final girl actually be the killer. And we were all in on that. It could have been a really interesting way to do a second trilogy centering around Jill. That would have been Actually, smart. I think that would have been a great idea. And, you know, for the record, I don't hate Sydney or any of that crowd, but it's just... It's the same problem I always had with the Alien movies back in the day. Not every Alien movie needs Sigourney Weaver in it. But goddammit, they were going to shoehorn her into every damn movie. Now, the first one, naturally. Okay, sure. The second one, that was smart. That was a direct sequel. Okay, good. And then they started, you know, well, we wrote her out in the third one. They literally killed her off, had her fall into the flames and die a heroic death only to bring her back again with cloning and all this stupid horse shit. It's like, you can tell an alien's story without Sigourney Weaver. And that's how I am with the Scream. You don't need Sydney. If this is a good enough movie on its own, you don't need to have the exact same cast again and again and again and again. And that's why everybody's all, oh my god, I can't believe Sydney's not in the new one. I'm like, yeah, who cares? If it's a good movie, it's a good movie. And yeah, if she is your favorite character and all that, I can I can understand you wanting to see her, but I just I hate when movies get so hung up on one particular actor. It's like, and now this is gonna be some heresy. People are gonna shit their pants. You're gonna say Bruce Campbell? No. Oh. <laughs> Robert England as Freddy. Oh god. And every You can't have a Freddy movie without Robert England. I do agree with that. He is that character. But he's also a, human, and B, old. <laughs> he can't do that forever. So either you just sit there and shut the fuck up and be happy that they will never make another Nightmare on Elm Street movie ever again, or you just sit there and let them recast a role. You know, something Hollywood's been doing for the past couple hundred years. You know, day one. Well, has it been a couple, couple Well, yeah. <laughs> 800 years. I'm like, oh my god, am I even older than I thought I was? So, I mean, when Bela Lugosi was Dracula, he didn't come back for the next one, they replaced him. I mean, that's what Hollywood does. And I can see see the point with Freddy, because he is that character. He has made it his own. 
Yeah, I mean, I think it's our franchise, like our favorite franchise, is made up of a guy who has been played by numerous people, and it's, you know, he's in a mask, it doesn't matter. Like, I get it with Freddy, because there is personality behind that character. He talks a lot. So, I, I understand... But at the same time, I'm not mad at Jack Errol Haley. I thought he did a great job. No, I think he did an excellent job. But, I mean, just take Robert England all by his little old self. You look at Freddy from Nightmare on Elm Street, the first one. And then you look at Freddy from Freddy's Dead. Fucking tell me with a straight face that's the same character. Bullshit. Well, they even look different. Well, yeah, all they of always them, look you know. different. I, I get that. I understand. I don't care about that. But they have changed that character so fucking much. And that's why I'm not a huge Freddy fan. I never have been. I love the first one. I like the second. I love the third one. And then after that, eh. And then I liked uh, New Nightmare just because they tried something new. And they made Freddy scary again. Mm-hmm. But that whole character, his trajectory from the very start for me anyways, was downhill. They kept making them funny, they kept making them do one-liners, and then, yeah, Freddy's dead, they just went beyond the pale and, you know, had him as the wicked witch of the well, west. Well, that's, that's exactly Playing with his power glove, yeah. and just fuck you. When they had him dressed like Margaret Hamilton, flying outside the window, yeah. or like, alright, we've kind of So yeah, that's the, the same here. actor, but there's no way in Fucking hell, that's the same character. But people don't care about that, I guess. I mean, I always did. I hate funny Freddy, but whatever. <laughs> okay, well, we digress. <laughs> As we often do, or at least I do. I fully admit that. Uh, Nicole says... Oh, yay, Nicole! I recently rewatched Intruder. It's an 80s slasher that I just don't hear talked about enough. I really like the kills and nice. the practical effects. But how could you not with Kurtzman, Berger, and Nicotero at the helm? And it's fun seeing a young Sam and Ted Raimi. Scream 4 is one I need to revisit. It's always been my least favorite of the franchise, but I've only seen it twice, and I did go up on it with a second viewing. With the new one coming out soon, I think I should rewatch them all. Well, yeah, I mean, like I said, I didn't dislike Scream 4, but I never thought it was anything great. I was like, eh, it's a good little movie, I guess, whatever. Uh, watching it again the second time, I really did like it. It is now my second favorite of the Scream franchise. I think it's solid from beginning to end. Now, you don't have to agree with that, but yeah, sure, give it a second chance. See if it's grown on you. Clerks is a movie I really need to watch. I was in high school when the first came out, and it's one I've watched and repeat since then. It's always spoke to me, my generation, in a way that no other movie has. Damn so great. I'm looking forward to the conclusion. Yay, she's one of us. <laughs> one of us. One, one of us. us. Nicole. Gobble. <laughs> uh, when you do, and and I think you should, when you do watch it, let us know what you think. Because I thought it was just fantastic. As for your bumps segment, lots of great scenes that definitely get to me. A Quiet Place is a big one from recent years. I kept thinking it would be more of a family horror movie where none of them would die. <laughs> oh, so when it went there, I was shocked. My daughter and I audibly gasped and looked at each other. <laughs> it was then I knew I'd love that movie. Oh, that is exactly what happened to me. 
Uh, now, you guys mentioned Jaws as a favorite that didn't have a shocking scene, but I disagree. Maybe it's because I saw it really young. I was five or six. I just think it's funny. Uh, I was, because I was five when I first saw it. I was five or six when I tried watching Jaws. That moment when the kid gets eaten freaked me out. You know what? That never bothered me, even as a five-year-old. I always loved that scene. <laughs> I couldn't finish the movie. I think that was the oh shit moment for me as a kid when I realized kids could die. The Ben Gardner scene. Is where, that the head? Yeah. That's what That's, I was going to say. That is one that, that got me yeah. when I was a kid. In retrospect, yeah, it does have some shocking moments. And for me, it was always the head falling out of the boat. Yeah. That always got me. Yeah, I always thought that was a really good jump scare. Also, as I've often said, it was way back in the day, so it was PG- Mm-hmm. But it was still, you didn't expect that. You didn't see that every day. Some heads no. floating around. So when it happened, I was like, oh, shit. <laughs> now, Nicole, if you want to know a secret, don't tell anyone. But I'll share a secret with just you. <laughs> that when I was a kid, and I used to play Jaws in the bathtub <laughs> with my Barbies. And then I had the Jaws game, so it had the big plastic shark. So I would play Jaws in the bathtub when I was a kid. But... I could only play for a few minutes before it would start to freak me out, and I would have to get out of the bathtub. (laughs) I would stand on the side of the tub and stare down into the water because I knew, I just knew that a shark was coming to get me. I was about, uh, let's see, when did she play that game? No, I was, I think I was six when I did that. But it, you know, it is definitely effective. Mm -hmm. It It was a very effective film. Another big one for me was the taking of Deborah Logan. Nice. You know the scene. Damn straight. <laughs> in the cave. I was not expecting anything like that. Oh, my goodness. I oh. remember the first time we watched that. Oh, yeah. <laughs> I remember when we showed it to my mom, and she was like, Oh, my God! <laughs> <laughs> well, you remember we were watching Chills. God only knows why, but we were watching a Chills, He's funny. A Chills video, <laughs> and he... Is he still around? I think. Yeah, and he used the taping, the taking of Deborah Logan, that scene. Yeah. In one of his videos, like, and you know how he. he oh yeah, that was supposed to be a real yeah, video, he was like of supernatural stuff. Yeah. Like, what's going on here? <laughs> this could be fake, but <laughs> it looks very real. Wouldn't if, it be horrifying? If you've never seen Chills. <laughs> I highly recommend him. I mean, he gets old relatively quickly, um, but he is funny because he always talks like he's asking you a, a question. question. <laughs> Burger King foot lettuce. Like, <laughs> oh my goodness! Yeah, if you don't know Chills, if you've never watched, and just do it. It's very funny. He's on YouTube. He does these little collections of supposedly... Number 15. True horror. They're never true, but whatever. Well, it's always like, uh, could this be really... Or could this be a real ghost, you know, moving their stuff around? No, it's not. not. It's always... Like, he always takes clips from the internet and, you know, they're supposedly like real ghost hunters or, you know, real paranormal activity that someone caught on camera, but the majority of them are obviously faked (laughs) but it's i don't know it's kind of entertaining but 
Brian tries to sneak him on every now and again, and I'm just like, oh, God. I actually haven't watched him in a long time. We need to catch up. Nope, it's fine. No, Chills is awesome. <laughs> she goes on to say, the biggest one, though, had to be hereditary. Nice. I also thought the girl would be the focus of the movie, but the mm-hmm. fact that she died and how she died was so shocking. That scene, that whole movie, stayed with me for days. Yeah, that's why... Uh, that movie took my number one spot the year it came out. I remember it came out the same year as Quiet Place. And those two were jockeying uh, for me. Because, you know, one is all about possession and haunting and all that stuff. But the other one's about big monsters that eat you. And little kids, too. So that was like a, a Sophie's choice for me. I was like, oh, which one? But eventually I went to Hereditary. just packed more of a punch. But those Oh, were- we have... Oh, sorry. Well, I was just going to say those were some awesome picks... Thank you so much, Nicole, for sharing them. And, as always, the feedback. Yep, much appreciated. Uh, We also have a post from Matt Wood. (laughs) Says, on ketchup, love the quote, Damn, she was woke before woke was woke. (laughs) That was you talking about Ripley. I don't remember that. I mean, I might have. You were talking talking about Prey. Okay. It was from the... Oh, yeah, how everybody was, oh, that movie's so woke because it has a female and grr. And it's like, badass chicks have always been in horror movies. (laughs) And yeah, Ripley was woke before woke was woke. Awesome. Thanks so much. And that is Matt, uh, who from, for people who aren't aware, he does a show with Kate called Eternal Darkness of Not So Spotlit. Wait. Is that right? Eternal so, Darkness of Not-So-Spotless Minds. Yes. There's really awesome. A really fun horror podcast. If you've never listened to it, you should. Yeah, we've been on it. We listen to it, and we love it. So consider that a high recommendation. Okay, and I think that's everything that I found as far as messages go. Mm, it looks about that. If we did miss one of your messages, sorry, please feel free to send it again and say, hey, jackasses, read this. Asshole, (laughs) that's my truck. (laughs) I'm right here. (laughs) I love Jeff. (laughs) Okay, so I guess we'll wrap that bit up and we can then move directly into the movies after this real quick break. here we have to do the alphabet no way i'm busting loose (sighs) that's the son of the abcs of hidden horror now it is time to discuss our film choices for this episode for this valentine episode Aww. for this we've kind of the the theme that we went with was well it was my pick and the theme that i went with was not specifically valentine but rather just love in wow. And we both ended up choosing something that is kind of about love eternal. Kind of, yeah. One is more tragic and one has a happier ending, I guess. Yeah. First up is going to be my choice, and that is The Hunger from 1983. Was uh, directed by Tony Scott, based on the novel by Whitley Strieber. 
is it Straber or Striber? It's I-E, and typically e. that's E. Yeah, I don't know exactly, but Streber sounds good. Okay. You will recognize him from, uh, he wrote the book The Wolfen that the film Wolfen was based off of. Uh-huh. And also uh, that, what was that Jodie Foster movie? Communion. Communion. Thank you. <laughs> the Alien. That was a Jodie Foster movie? Wasn't she in that? Oh, wait a minute. Was she in, like, Contact or yeah, something? Yeah, Contact okay. she was in. All right. Yeah, I don't know. Some C I can't alien remember. Movie. <laughs> well, no, I think there is a movie called Communion. It is based is, off a yeah. book that he wrote. Yeah. But I can't remember who's in the yeah, movie. Yeah, I can't either. I was just, I was just wrong about that. But this stars Susan Sarandon, Catherine Deneuve, David. You know, all my life I've said Bowie, but if you talk to British people, they say Bowie. And he's British. So. Yeah, but they also call, like, trunks boots, and that's just silly. Yeah, but I would think that British people <laughs> would know to, how to pronounce a British name. Yeah, but we're American over here. That doesn't mean you pronounce people's names differently. See that big old knife I got right there? Yes. What kind of knife is that? It's a Bowie knife. <laughs> no, it's a Bowie knife. <laughs> yes, but that doesn't mean anything. Yes, it could I- be, you know, it could be a, a homonym. Or homophone. Gramophone? Your mom's a homophone. <laughs> anyway, Bowie or Bowie, however, but... Yeah, I think it is technically Bowie, because that's what they say and whatever, but it's David Bowie over here. All right. <laughs> well, you call him whatever you want. There's a reason he's afraid of Americans. <laughs> ah, that was David Bowie, right? Uh, this also ha- it also has Cliff DeYoung, and I guess that's it for... People, people will know. Blinking, you know it. Uh, oh my shit! Oh shit! Yes, a very young Willem Dafoe. Yep. And I think it might be his first feature film he was in. Well, I mean, it's really just a walk-on part. Yeah. I mean, he says, "Come on, lady." Yeah, how about <laughs> it? it? You know, because he's waiting for the phone booth. But that's it. And then there's also with him. I cannot remember his name, but. He's in other stuff, too. He was, um, like I said, he played Demi Moore's husband in Mortal Thoughts. That's immediately what pops to my head, but I can never remember his name. But anyway, they just sort of briefly show up. But that's kind of wild. Okay, well, like I said, this was based on the novel. But there are some differences between the book and the film, as there always are. That's just the way it is when when you adapt a book. But the ending of the film is very different from the ending of the book. And I'll get more into that when we're wrapping up the discussion. But I do, I will say that for the most part, now I have not read the book in probably 15 years. I haven't read the book since high school, so I'd beat you. (laughs) But I did just whip it out right before we recorded. Hey, that's dirty. (laughs) Because I wanted to uh, compare the endings. Mm. And... Uh, so I just read the last few pages just to kind of see how it ended, ended. But I do recall the majority of the film being very faithful to the book. Not necessarily, you know, beat for beat, but the idea I honestly is there. can't remember a damn thing about the book. It was one of the ones I read early in my horror-loving career, and I recognized parts from the movie. Like, oh yeah, I remember that from the book, but that's about it. I remember I liked the book, so that's something. And I liked the movie, so... Yeah, well, the movie actually got some really terrible reviews when it came out. 
I can kind of see that. It's kind of like, it's very art house. Done by Tony Scott at his most uh, flamboyant. I mean, there's a lot of scenes. While the scenes look good, there's a lot of stuff in here. It's like, well, that was just unneeded. Well, and that's one of the biggest criticisms it got when it came out was that there's a lot of style with very little substance. Yes, exactly. And that he spends so much time crafting what the film should look like that he doesn't leave time to tell a story. Well, he is a very... That's what Roger Ebert said. He is very, very... Uh, a very visual director. Oh, he always he is, has you know. been. But I think in later movies, he reined that in some so that his visual style didn't really get in the way of his storytelling. Because here, there's times where the movie just basically stops dead in its tracks so he can show you this and that and ooh, that's pretty and ooh, look at that. And that's fine. Film is a visual medium, but it shouldn't just be, okay, let's just sit here and look at stuff for like 10 minutes while the story is just on pause. He loves his billowing yes. fabrics and his doves and his and fog. oh my Christ, he just goes off on that. I mean, at the end, there's more dubs in this movie than all the John Woo movies combined. <laughs> and that's saying something. Well, and for anyone who doesn't know, um, Tony Scott is Ridley Scott's brother, or was. Yeah. He has passed away. But... He's also the director of Top Gun. Yeah. So if you look at this film and, and others, I mean, he has a pretty decent sized catalog. He was a oh, yeah. fairly busy director. But if you look at this film and then just two years later, no. When was Top Gun? 86? 85? I said, uh, sounds so like right. three years later, I'll yeah. say if it was 86. A very differently constructed film. Yes. And you would never know... Now, there are things, if you are in the know, there are things that you can pick out that that make it feel like a Tony Scott film. But if you had no idea and you just watched these two films, those two films back to back, I don't think you'd ever notice it was the same director. Yeah. Just they're very, very different. But this one, honestly, reminds me, stylistically, it's not as, uh, it's not as heavy into the fairy tale aspect of it. But stylistically, it reminds me of something like The Company of Wolves. Well, I just looked up uh, Tony Scott, and this was his first theatrical movie. Oh. Before that, he'd only done like TV series and short movies and stuff like that. He did one movie, Loving Memory, but he did that under a different name, so who knows why. Uh, so he did this Top was, Gun right after this. Yeah, not this right was after, 83. It was his next movie. Top Gun was his very next movie in 86, and he had a world of change. You can kind of tell this is a very early director. At least I can. He is real, like I said, he's really focused on being artistic. What was that movie that he did that you showed me? It was the action film. Black and, Rain. Okay. And there's just fans everywhere. Yep. Every fucking scene has some kind of fan in it. He whether became it's a like fan an, of fans. Whether it's an industrial <laughs> fan or like a little desk fan. It's just, it's kind of fun to pick out. Well, I mean, th that's in a lot of his, like, I remember he did Beverly Hills Cop 2. And there was a big scene, the final scene in a warehouse where there's a ginormous fan casting shadows everywhere. He does really like that. Again, he was a very visual director. But as I was saying, you can tell this is his first movie or really early in his career because he's too focused on that. Mm -hmm. You know, he hasn't 
learned how to bring a little bit from column A and a little bit of column B and put them together and tell a full story. And this is a good movie. I do like this movie. But again, it, it's so much... Well, I think Roger Ebert is one of the times he was correct. It is style over substance. I happen to think it works well for this film. I like the pacing of it. I like the quietness of it. It's a very quiet film. It, uh, you know, And I think it fits. I do feel like, though, here, here he was solely focused on the artistry yes. of filmmaking. And then maybe after, maybe it had something to do with the reviews. Maybe it had something to do with the way it was. Now, it actually did win two awards for um, makeup and costume. Mm. <laughs> and I also wanted to mention the makeup effects in this were done by the legendary Dick Smith, who also did the makeup effects for, most famously, I, I think, as a horror fan, The Exorcist. But he did an incredible job yeah. on that. There's a lot of aging makeup in this and, and he is just unbeatable. Yeah, if you need old age makeup, makeup, he was the guy to call. Yeah. I mean, hell, I was a, I was grown before I realized that uh, looking at oh, what's his name from The Exorcist? Swedish uh, McSweetie Swedish. <coughs> oh. <laughs> what is this? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, oh, that Father Marin wasn't actually that age. Who played Father Marin? I, that's what I'm. I can't remember. <laughs> oh God! Damn. I believe you just referred to him as Swedish McSweet Sweet. Bork bork bork. Why can't um, I remember his name? He's huge. Wow, getting old sucks. Yeah. <laughs> Well, just ask, ask Dick Smith. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, so here it was clear that Tony was focused on the artistry of filmmaking, but maybe hadn't even considered the commercial aspect yeah. of it. But then obviously, when he made Top Gun, his very next film, that changed. And then, yeah, he went on to make things like Black Rain and Beverly Hills Cop 2. Uh-huh. Uh, it, which he are had a very... Varied de- yeah, career. They're very different. You would never look at The Hunger and look at any of those movies and go, same guy. One of the movies he directed, The Fan. Ah, <laughs> another one, though, that is very different from... Yeah. It's like he did this one artistic film, and then he was off and running with doing all kinds of other well, again, commercially all his, viable things. All his movies had this very heavy artistic visual feel to him but just here i think he was a bit too infatuated by that like again he was just learning his craft he was like yeah this is great and i can do this and i can do that and i'll put the camera over here and i'll shoot this in slow-mo and i'll have doves and all these billowing curtains well and he had the very obvious and awkward mirror on the bed when yeah. w- during the love scene between Susan Sarandon and Catherine Deneuve and that mirror was not there the last time we saw her bedroom and she brought it like, in just for that I was like that's kind of bizarre <laughs> but okay uh, it also she told Susan Sarandon just wait a minute and she was pushing this in this film was embraced by the goth culture oh yeah actually oh. the the opening of the film Bauhaus. It, uh, Bauhaus 
and it's uh, Bela Lugosi is dead. Bela Lugosi's dead. <laughs> and it, it's in a club, and it opens up in a club, and Catherine Deneuve, who is Miriam, and David Bowie, who is John, uh, and they are a couple, and they're in this club, and you don't really, you don't get conversations. This is all cuts, like scene cuts playing, or while the song is playing. And you just get the idea that this couple picks up another couple in a club, goes back to the other couple's house. They're dancing, they're drinking, then all of a sudden they're Out killing. Out the teeny <laughs> tiny knives and uh, the blood sucking. Yeah, they have these little onk necklaces that have like little hidden knives in them. And that's what they use. They don't have, they don't get vampire teeth. Yeah. You know, it's not, they're not that kind of vampire. And if you read the book... Uh, they don't really go into this as much in the film. There are a couple of visu- visual cues that kind of give you an idea, but Tony doesn't waste a lot of time with dialogue. Like, he doesn't really tell you No, again, he's a whole very lot. visual above all things. But in the book, Miriam is from ancient Egypt. Which cracks me up in this. Yeah, well, it's kind of like Sean Connery. That's what Sean Connery was more Egyptian and Highlander (laughs) than Catherine Deneau is here. Well, and uh, Susan Sarandon even says at one point that she's European. And she clearly, that, that Miriam is European. And she clearly has a European accent. And she's... Blonde is all hell, mm-hmm. but she's supposed to be Egyptian. But she is from ancient Egypt, and her mother—and you don't get any of this from the movie—but her mother was also a vampire, and that's where she got it from. And her mother's name is Lamia, just uh, like yeah. the goddess. Yep. So it's—it was very purposeful in the novel, but you don't get any of that in the movie. You don't really get a whole lot. Either he assumed everyone would have read the book, or he just didn't give a shit. He's like, this isn't important. There's two scenes. There's one scene, it's clearly set in Egypt, because it has all the color palettes there. And just it looks, you know, there's, of course, cloth draperies uh, flying through the air. And there's an Egyptian guy who's sitting on a bed, Mm -hmm. freaking out. Then later, there's a scene of... Also in e- ancient Egypt, some Egyptian dude in ceremonial robes with a hat. He's laying on the ground, and Miriam is also in Egyptian garb. She also has the eye makeup you always see mm-hmm. in a movie set in Egypt. And she's drinking his blood, being all vampiric and all that. So yeah, she is from Egypt. Bullshit. But hey, whatever. But we know, and we don't get a year, but... You can tell just by, you get a couple of brief flashback scenes with Miriam and John, and they met in 18th century France. John B. and David Bowie. David Bowie. And you can only tell that by just the way they're dressed. It's clearly 18th century France, but it's never said. So you can, they've been, they've been together for about 200 years. After the first scene where they feed on this other couple, then John starts to age. Yeah, all of a sudden. Very rapidly. Yeah. Very rapidly. He also can't sleep anymore. Right. He can feed, and usually feeding will replenish you. Um, Later on, we find out the rules are that you will sleep six hours out of 24, and you will feed one day out of seven. 
So they feed once a week and it keeps you replenished. But we also learn that even though Miriam is eternal, she will never age. She will never die. She will never grow old. Like she is, she is who she is for eternity. Those that she transforms aren't quite as lucky. No, they get a couple hundred years. Yeah. But then once they start to decline, it's very rapid in, I'd say, the most a week. But what I love about that is it's it's nice and grim. It's nice and dark. They still live. Oh, oh they live. It, you know what it reminds me of? Are those people in the chapel, whatever, in the ritual? Mm-hmm. You know, yeah, those, yeah, exactly. You know, They're the, the same ancient, thing. The ancient ones? They are cursed with immortality. Right. It's not a blessing. Because the body still ages. In this case, he had 200 years of being a young guy, running around, having fun. 30, he 30, said. 30, that's right. But all of a sudden, bam, he becomes ancient and old and decrepit and basically like a mummy or a skeleton, but he's still alive. And Miriam, she's such a great person. She has a crematorium in her basement, which is a good thing to have if you're a vampire who has to kill somebody every week. So that's how they get rid of the bodies. Why not just chuck David Bowie in there and let him burn up? Yeah, that would suck. Yeah, that would hurt. But I think it would be a much better alternative than eternal life in a coffin stuffed in the attic because that's what she does with him and that's what she has done with all of her past lovers throughout time. Right. And she has a lot of them. Yeah. There are a lot. We see them at the end. Well, you figure... On average, each one gets about 200 years, mm-hmm. and she says she's 2,000 years old. Do the math. That's a lot of dead people up there. Or not dead. That's a bummer. Undead people up there. Yeah. And she's just a selfish bitch. Because I can't bear to leave you. I love you so much. So are you going to curse me to hell on earth, rotting away in a coffin, but still alive? Well, here's the interesting thing is that I... Every fuck time, that. stick me in acid, burn my ass up, run me over with <laughs> a steamroller, whatever the fuck you gotta do. Every time I watch this film, I get a different feeling from it. I have watched it and found it incredibly sad and romantic. I get nothing of that. Here. I. She is a selfish bitch. She is, hang who on. doesn't want to live alone. Well, hang on. And then I have watched it. And felt that every action that she took was very selfish. It is. But it kind of, I guess, depends on what mood I'm in when I watch the film or something. Uh, Because there are, and I, today, I landed on selfish. And it's because not only does she not allow them the release of death. And she tells them, she says, you know, we, you know, we cannot die. And she says we a lot. And I'm thinking, well, it's easy to say that when you're, this isn't going to happen to you. Yeah, you're still up and walking around. You still have a yeah. life. But she's like, we cannot die. Bob's we in a box somewhere. <laughs> are, we are cursed to live eternal in these desiccated bodies that are basically mummies yeah but you cannot die you will always hear you will always see you will always feel and you will always be hungry yeah and the vampiric hunger in this is just like it is in any other vampire tale in that it is all encompassing and torturous yeah so if you cannot feed and you 
you cannot die, and she puts you in a coffin. In Interview of a Vampire, that was one of the most torturous punishments for yes. vampires. Yes. They would, you know, they put Lestat in a steel coffin and said, or not Lestat, it was the other one. Oh, criminy, what was his name? Uh, the good vampire, the crybaby who only ate rats. Um, <laughs> they put him in a steel box and, you know, eternity in a box. Louis? Louis, yeah, Louis. that was it. Yeah. And uh, that would just suck, kill me. But that's the point. It's worse than death. Right. It is a curse. It's so a this curse. is what she's doing to her lovers. Yes, those that she loves. But what makes it even worse to me is that she tells them, we will be together forever and ever. Forever and ever. You will never yeah. grow old. She you just, will never die. And this ain't the first time this has happened, so she knows she she's knows. lying. And the, But the tragic part of it is that there is a part of her that every time, and this is discussed in the book as well, but every time she takes a new lover, she hopes yes, I that, get that. They will, that they will last forever. And then, of course, it's the same But that's a bitch who's ever. lying to herself. Yeah, or, I'm not arguing with you. I'm just telling you what the book says. Yeah, I know, but... I'm telling you, in regards to that character, she's still a evil, and yeah, she's a vampire. She kills people by na by definition. See, she's evil. But even to these people, she professes love. That's why I don't get any romantic bullshit from this story. She is a selfish, needy bitch who only worries about herself. It's all about me, me, me. I don't want to be alone. Well, no, and that's true because what you discover too is then okay. So John ages to the point where he, he can't even walk collapses can't move. yeah so she takes him upstairs and that's where we then discover the room of coffins and you know she talks to him for some reason. she talks to him as she's putting him away and then she slides him in with the other ones and she taps on one of her old lovers and she's like this is John be kind to him everyone please be kind to him tonight and i'm just like oh my god that's horrible yeah. but at this point uh, he even asks her he before he gets to the point where he collapses he asks her he's like who is it to be? Who's going to be your next lover? And she's like, stop it. And he's like, don't tell me you haven't thought about yeah, it. I know she you have. Yes, Again, she's a selfish bitch. But she has set her sights on the doctor who runs, it's Susan Sarandon, and she is a doctor who runs uh, a research facility or works at a research facility where they are attempting to uncover the connection between sleep and longevity. So John goes to see her at one point after they, you know, he reads her book and they see her on TV and I get, they're kind of grasping, hoping that maybe she'll have some answers and she doesn't, but that's who Miriam has set her sights on next. But what you notice is she, and this to me is what, really drives the point home that she is very selfish. And that is she doesn't give her a choice. She never tells her what she's doing. She doesn't tell her who she is, what she is, anything. She seduces her and they have sex. And during that, 
Miriam bites Sarah and then also gives Sarah some of her blood, but Sarah doesn't realize what's happening. You know, it's that whole, I guess it's like the whole vampire thing. You know, you're caught up in it. You're seduced. But she doesn't ever tell her at that point what she is and what she's doing. So she doesn't give her the choice. She sees what she wants and she takes it. And then she damns them to what she tells them is eternal life, but it's really not. It's only a couple hundred years. Technically, it is eternal life. Well, you only yeah. Have a few good years. Eternal <laughs> youth, I guess, yeah. is uh, because that's not a thing. That to me is by far the most horrible thing. Part yeah. of it is that you're doing this to people, and she tells her, you know, eventually you will come to forget what you were, and you will then. Learn to love me as I love you. And at that point, Sarah, then uh, they start to kiss. She takes the ankh and she drives it into her own throat so that she'll bleed out. But the problem with that is that she has already turned and that's not going to kill her. But because all of her blood has run out, she can no longer feed. She can no longer really survive. So now she has basically hastened her own trip to, you know, eternal darkness in a box. But, and that's how the book does it. Uh, the book actually has Sarah's character being put into a box like everybody else. And then it ends with Miriam moving away and she keeps all the boxes with her everywhere she goes, you know, but... Which is a much better ending. That is a much better ending. The film ends very differently in that they still have the suicide scene where Sarah stabs herself in the throat. And it's actually done, her suicide, She in the book, she cuts her wrists. But in the throat, uh, in the throat, in the film, she stabs it, stabs herself in the throat, which I think actually I like that better. Uh, visually, yeah. I think it it kind of fits with everything. But as Miriam is taking her upstairs, then put her in the box. to put her in her box, all of the other lovers, their mummies, <laughs> have come out of their boxes and they come for her, kind of like the ending of Maniac. Yeah, a little. But that does not happen at all in the book. And then they end up sort of pushing her over the or causing her to fall over the banister of the stairwell which is several floors up and you know she falls down to the bottom hits the bottom and then rapidly ages and once she starts to age all the mummies turn to dust and then the next thing we see is sarah who has now moved to london she survived the she survived and she has two companions of her own. And she keeps Miriam in a box. Which that I think is kind of poetic and yes. fitting. However, the reason they did that was because the studio wanted them to. Because they wanted to keep the door open for possible sequels. Uh. And that's exactly why they ended it that way. Which I don't... I, it's just to me not, not a very good ending because it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense that Sarah would have recovered yeah. from all of that. And actually, Susan Sarandon herself has said that 
she didn't understand it. She's like, nobody knew what was going on because they had just broken all of the rules that we spent the entire film constructing and nobody got it. Like, nobody knew what was happening because she shouldn't have also survived that. If Miriam's death breaks the cycle, mm-hmm. because I'm assuming that's what happens because once she ages out and dies, all the other mummy people, they just, they literally fall apart. Yeah. They get so old, they just become dust. Then how come Susan Strandon's still alive? Well, and then how come Miriam is still alive? Well, because no, Miriam is... is alive just because I think that's a good ending. I never understood the whole, they don't really tell you the rules all that much. They say something like, oh, we have incredible health and we heal quickly and all that. But I don't know what kind of sucky-ass vampire dies from falling down some stairs. And I never understand, I mean, she hits the floor, then she starts spazzing out, and then she ages out and all that stuff. Yeah. I never got that either, and I didn't understand how, okay, so she fell like three stories and hit the tile floor on her back, but that wouldn't kill a vampire. Like, what's the, how? Maybe they're just like humans, but they live longer and all that. Okay, but she spent 2,000 years and she's never fallen before? Right. I mean, that would be a hell of a way to live. I mean, uh, if you can live forever, but... Just don't fall down. Yeah, you can die, you know, at a... I'd be in trouble. Drop of a... Yeah, you'd be (laughs) dead a long time ago. But, and then once she does, once she gets so incredibly desiccated that she's pretty much falling apart... How then is there enough of her left it to, makes no sense. to be in the box? Yeah. And you can hear her. And Sarah! It, she, at the end, yeah, the, as the film ends, she is. you can hear her calling Sarah's name because she is now trapped in the box the same way she has trapped all of her lovers. I do like that. Yes. I like the fact that I think that's very poetic. I think that's uh, uh, that is the way that she deserves to end. Yes. Because of all the other people that she has damned mm-hmm. to that same ending. It just doesn't make sense. No. You know, the whole thing on the whole doesn't really make sense. But, yeah, whatever. I still still think it's a beautiful film. First of all, I love the way it looks. Uh, again, style um, over substance. Um, I love the music. Yeah. I love the acting. I think, I don't know. I, I think it's, I just love it. I've always loved it. I, like I said, I've bounced back and forth. I think the older I get, I see it differently. When I was younger, I saw it with a more romantic point of view mm. in that it's so sad and tragic that she can't bring herself to kill those that she loves so much. Uh, but then as I've gotten older, I realized she's just, a selfish she's just very selfish yeah. <laughs> because yeah, I mean, they're standing in the furnace room when John is begging her yeah. to kill him. Please release oh, me. I just can't. <laughs> and she's like, you don't understand. I can't. We we can't die. And I'm thinking, bullshit. If There's you throw a furnace him in the right fire, there. There's the, if you throw him in the fire, he like will die. Like a wise die. man once said, everything burns. So, th- fuck you with that shit. I hate that in movies where, how do we kill him? He just can't die. Burn him. Everything burns. Stick him in a furnace long enough, he'll be nothing but ash. Now, do you think that it would be sentient ash that he would no, be cursed to for- <laughs> Well, I'm just saying, like, if she didn't have 
the goddamn incinerator in her basement. Yes. Then I would think otherwise. But they put a goddamn incinerator. Yeah, they use it to get basement. rid of their victims. Use that to you know put John to rest. But no, she can't even do that. So. Fuck her. Yeah, just, oh, God. And yeah, she just immediately moves on to the next one. Yeah. And John knew yep. of the one before He's him. not even dead yet, and she's already looking for someone else. That's how little she gives a fuck about him. Well, what I was going to say is he knew the one before him. Yeah. And, or at least knew her name. So, and he knows Miriam. He has known her for 200 years. He knows how she is. So, he's he knows that somebody's coming right after him. Mm-hmm. And it's, I mean, to me, that's just horrible. And, he's, and he tells her, he's like, you know, you told me forever. You promised. Although he seemed quite willing at, uh, in the little flashback that we got. But well, who wouldn't be? You get a, you know, hot chick who has tons of money because she lives forever. And she's like, you know... We can live together forever. True love throughout the ages. And we'll never grow old. And we'll always be young and sexy and all that. And that's a hard thing to go, nah, I don't want that. So yeah, he was like, okay, that sounds good. And it's only now at the end he realizes how fucked he is. And I do like that from a storytelling standpoint. It is a good story. I never loved this movie because, again, I think Scott's artistic fetishes getting away too much for me. I also think the movie kind of drags a little bit in the middle. But it's a good, solid vampire movie. I like that it goes back to the whole lesbian vampire thing because yes. there's a book called La Fawn. It's old as shit. shit. It's one of the very first vampire books. And yeah, it's about a lesbian vampire. Because it was written back in ye old Victorian times, they couldn't come out and say that, but... If you know anything at all, yeah, you get it. <laughs> if you ever read the book, it's pretty obvious. And there's always been a trope of lesbian vampires. Mm-hmm. Uh, hell, there's a movie called Vampire Lovers from the 70s. I think Hammer did it, but I can't. I could be wrong about that. And that's all about a female vampire who happens to like other females. Oh, what's that book? Uh, everyone has used it uh, to spin off their own stories, but about the... the ca, ca- Cuh. It starts with a cuh. See, it's a... Fuck! This is what I live with every day. Uh. <sighs> no, it's not that, Pugs. Or Vampire. that. Vampire. Carmilla! Oh, yeah. <laughs> cuh, cuh. I should have got that. <laughs> you should have. I should have. <laughs> But yeah, well, and, you know, go back to Victorian times. It was all about repressed sexual desire. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so it lends itself. They they have lent themselves to romantic storylines over the years because it fits, mm-hmm. you know, and sexual desire because it fits. And this kind of encompasses both. And I like the fact that she has lovers, male and female, uh, throughout the years. It's just whomever she has decided she wants at the time. And, I don't know, it's so tragic. Yeah. It's so tragic. Because John clearly loves her. And I think he expected her to release him 
I don't think, I don't get the, I don't remember what, how it goes in the book, but I don't get the impression from the film that he knew. No. About the, the other boxes. lovers. Yeah. He knows that there is a finite amount of time and that one day you will just start to disintegrate, yeah. you know, that you will just start to age rapidly. But I think he was under the impression that he would die at that point. I don't think he knew that he had was basically damned to an eternity of being in a box. And that also, I guess, serves another purpose because not only is she keeping them with her, but she's also keeping them out of sight. Mm-hmm. Like, they're way up in the attic, in these boxes. It's not like she ever opens the boxes and talks to them. Now, she may go up and talk to them, period. But I doubt it because she has gotten a new lover at that point. Yeah. So it's again, it's all about her. Yeah, they're stored away. As soon as John goes, oh, I'm getting old. She's on to the next one, like that. Yeah, and she keeps them like you would keep keepsakes in a hope chest or something. Like you would take your take your dog who dies and stuff it and put it on the mantle. It's the same damn thing. Yeah, yeah, and it's it's very sad and very tragic for John and for her previous lovers. For her. At the end of the film, anyway, she gets what she deserves. Well, in all honesty, so do they, because they've been killing people for 200 years. Yeah, but if she has done all of them the way she did Sarah, they didn't have a choice. Yeah, but we don't know that. I mean... I just said if. Yeah. I mean, from what little we do see of the French nobility times and her hitting on Bowie... They're just making goo-goo eyes at each other, and then they kiss and all that stuff. I almost got the impression that he was in on it. Because he was so, you know, forever and ever, right? And I don't know. I gotta read the book again. It's been a long time. If he didn't know what was gonna happen to him, then I have sympathy for him. If he was like, yeah, this sounds good, what do we have to do? Oh, we just have to kill people every week. I'm in! Then fuck that guy. He gets what he deserves. But, you know, without knowing that, I guess I really can't, you know. I also wonder if anyone else has, and they didn't mention this in the book, so I, you don't know, but I wonder how many other lovers she has chosen over the years that have taken the Sarah route and attempted to kill themselves. Yeah. Because she, like we said, she was not given a choice. She didn't know what was happening to her. Suddenly, she's a vampire, and, and she's forced to kill her boyfriend. Yeah, she kills her. I don't know if that was a boyfriend or husband. I well, I mean, but to be honest, she was fine with cheating on him. I think that was the seduction, though. I think that was what was bothering her with din at dinner. After the fact, well, that and she was probably feeling weird because she had this other blood in her system and she didn't know what was going on. But I don't think that, I don't blame her for that. I think she was seduced. And vampiric seduction is impossible to ignore. The only supernatural power we know of for sure these vampires have is longevity. Well, she also has strength. And we saw her pick up Sarah and throw her across the room. And she attacked Tom, Sarah's boyfriend or husband. We don't actually know. They don't say if they're married or not. They live together, but they have different last names. But she's also a doctor, so she may have just kept her name. They don't say. 
but it's I, I it's a lot. I, I think it's a very heady film. It's a it's a it's a very mature film. Yeah. And that it's not something that uh, well, the first time I saw it, I was very young, and that's when I was like, oh, that's so sad and romantic, you know. <laughs> but then as I got older, I realized. Not so much. No. <laughs> Not so much. That's kind of horrifying. <laughs> That's what I like about it. I like the horror aspect of it. The whole, you know, yay, we get to live forever, but this is the price. Mm-hmm. No, I love that. You're gonna pay it. There's no escape from it. Again, there could be escape. Chuck yourself in a fire, but if you can't do that, then there's no escape. And, uh, yeah, it's just, it's, it is a fate worse than death. You know, that's some hardcore shit. Well, that was honestly, I mentioned the ritual earlier. When I realized who those people were. Yeah. And that that was like, that suddenly became one of my favorite parts yeah. of the whole thing. I love that. It's because it is horrifying. I can't think of anything It's the really devil's worse. bargain. It's the double-edged sword. It's the whole, yeah, you'll live forever. Wink. <laughs> right. And yeah, I'll live forever. But I never said anything about you, re- you know, remaining young forever or mobile forever or, you know, because after a while, you're just going to go nuts. Yeah. Whether you're, you know, stuck in a box forever or just stuck in a church with your rotting friends, you're going to go insane. Your body is desiccating, just falling apart. If you can feel it, that's hell of a thing. Even if you can't, just knowing you're sitting there and just rotting away. And there's nothing you could do about it ever. Plus, add on top of that, the hunger yeah. that she has that is a that is a torturous hunger, which just makes it even worse. Now, it's all very sad. There is actually a passage that I thought was interesting. And this is Sarah once she's in the box at the end, after she has attempted to commit suicide and then discovered, oh, I can't do that. (laughs) I can't die. All she did was hasten it, which is, and that in the book, Miriam laments that Sarah missed all the beauty and went straight for that. Like she changed and then immediately just went straight for death and missed all the beauty of the being young for, you know, hundreds of years or whatever. And this is actually the last passage before the epilogue. But Sarah says, Sarah's mind, uh, she found she could look within herself and even in this hell find riches of peace and love she had never known were there. She was full of grand memories and she possessed a great love as well. Tom was with her in spirit. No matter how long she must remain here, she came to realize that in the end, there was going to be a place, even for her, where Tom had already gone, on the far side of the river of life, where the lost of this world are found. And the sad part is, I don't think that's true. No. She has come to realize that, but I don't think she still has wrapped her mind around the fact that that's never coming. Yeah. It's very sad. I mean, you'd think, though, wouldn't the body eventually get to some point where it just is dust? 
Where there is nothing left? Yeah, but this is a disease or something that can keep you young for 200 years. So who knows what rules it's playing by. If it can keep a person young for X number of hundreds of years, it could keep your body together and, you know, on the brink of life. Yeah. Happy Valentine's Day. Yeah, no kidding. (laughs) Was there anything else you wanted to say about The Hunger? No, it's a good vampire movie. It's a very unique vampire movie. I can't think of another vampire movie quite like this. And, yeah, it's it's a good watch. I do think it drags a little bit in the middle, as I said, and I do think uh, Tony Scott, he uh, crawled up his ass a little too much in here as far as being artistic. He needed to rein that in, and he did in future films where he was still visually stunning and, you know, wow, woo, but it wasn't like everything had to stop so he can show you, this is what I can do with a camera. But it's a very solid film. I As far as a love story goes, I think it's very one-sided. Because I think Miriam is just a miserable bitch. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I can understand that. She doesn't want to be alone. And it, you get the idea that she is the only vampire she knows. So that is why she's constantly making these companions for him. And I get that. That's that's a trope about vampires. They always want so to have somebody So do what Ely does. Or do something, you know, bring someone into your life and be with them until they're gone and then bring somebody else in. But you don't have to damn them to do it. I don't know. At least then you wouldn't get as much time with them, obviously. You'd only get about 50 years versus the couple hundred years, but But what the hell do you care? I couldn't be, I, I don't know. I don't know what's going on in her fucked up mind other than I'm lonely, I don't want to be lonely. So... I'm going to fuck you over royally, but for the next couple hundred years, I don't have to worry about being lonely. You know, though, what that just makes the film ending, the very ending, at least with her in the box, even just that much better. Yeah. Is that the the one thing she feared more than anything mm-hmm. was being alone, and now she is. Well, that's what I always like. Uh, and I, I've seen it done in other movies and other books and all that. In my personal worldview, if there are vampires and any sort of immortal beings, they have to be the most terrified of death out of anyone. Because it's so not them. I'm going to live forever. I'm going to be here till the stars burn out. I'm blah, blah, blah. I am eternal. And that's when... Usually they're faced with their own demise. When they finally have a stake going to their heart or the sun is rising, they usually freak the fuck out because they never thought this would happen. Humans, we know we're going to die. Everything dies, but they don't. And I think they become used to it and they become, ha ha ha. And I love it when they get that realization in good movies anyways, where no, you, you aren't living forever. This is your end. Well, I don't know what else to Thumbs add. Thumbs up. I don't know what else to add. <laughs> um, I, I agree. Okay. Okay, well, and honestly, I think that's a good segue into your film. Yes, because mine is also about uh, eternal love, maybe. This is Spring from 2014. It was written by Justin Benson and directed by Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. That is Benson and Moorhead. There are or Benson and Hedges, as I keep calling yeah. them. <laughs> Not on purpose. <laughs> They're, you know, 
a couple of guys who's done a lot of movies together. They did Resolution, The Endless, this one, uh, Synchronicity, mm -hmm. and I think they have a new one out now I haven't seen yet. But all the movies they've done, I've really liked. A lot of them have a very cosmic horror type feel to them. Not necessarily Lovecraftian, but definitely on the cosmic scale of things. Uh, specifically and specially The Endless, which is probably my favorite film of theirs. But they've also done some other normal like stuff too. I know they did a bunch of episodes from the Moon Knight TV show that oh, Disney right. did. Oh, that's right, yeah. Anyways, this movie is about a young guy. He's uh, a young guy named Evan. He's just living with his mom. She is sick. She has cancer, you find out later. And she dies. And he starts falling apart, starts getting drunk, starts fighting people. And when a bad situation comes up, he decides to just take off, go to Italy, because he and his father always talked about going there, but his father died before they could do that. So he's like, fuck it, I'm going to go to Italy, I'm going to get my head together, or hopefully, and I just need a change of pace. So he goes to Italy, finds a couple of uh, British dudes, and he hangs out with them, and they're doing the whole, you know, tourist thing in Italy, drinking and chasing women, having a good time. Eventually, the two Brits get up and leave. They go somewhere else that's cheaper. Amsterdam. Yeah. He stays because he has met a, what he assumes to be an Italian woman. Well, she is. Uh, she shows him where she was yeah, born. I guess technically, yeah, she is. But I, she is more of a woman of the world. Well, yeah, and the actress is actually German. Yes. I like how there's a scene there where they're talking and he's like, so where are you from? And she's like, oh, I've been all over. I've been here and there and there. That's why my accent's so weird. And I like how they did that because for the most part, she tries to put on an Italian-ish accent, but sometimes her German does come through. So yeah, they lampshade that, but just saying I've been all over the place. And so, I have this weird cosmopolitan accent, which is kind of cool. This movie is, by and large, a romance. Yes. It has some horror elements, but I don't even know if I would call it a horror movie. It's not even all that scary. No, it's got body horror. It's got some body horror. It's got some cool special effects. And, you know, some people do get killed in it. But never once does I think... Does it dr try to be frightening? Maybe a scene or two here or there, but for the most part, it's not that. It's more of just this guy's Evan and his infatuation and then eventual love for this strange woman. And yeah, she's really hot, but she's also very worldly. She knows a lot of stuff, and she mentions it in passing. Eventually, they come out and tell you, but I like how this movie sets it up where she's, as they're going through this old, ancient, you know, Italian town, she looks at a building and she goes, oh, yeah, that, I remember that, blah, 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 and this and that, and, but this town is hundreds of years old. How does she know all this stuff? Well, that's because she also lives forever. Well, she shows him a fresco in a museum and she asks him and it's a the fresco is of a woman who has two colored eyes two differently colored eyes and she asks him what do you think of this and he's like oh she's pretty oh you think so 
and you know they walk away a couple scenes later we see that she is putting a contact over one of her eyes which is a different color hint hint and eventually there's even other pictures famous paintings from history of women with different colored eyes now they don't look the same it's not like it was her on the picture as she is now that would be too obvious and that's what most movies do, yeah, though. Yeah, that's what most they movies have the, do. You know, the same actress playing the woman, you know, years ago. She but looks exactly like the picture that's from 500 years ago. Yeah. There is very specifically a reason, though, that she doesn't look the same. Yes. But he buys her a book from the museum as a gift that has that fresco on the cover. And she tells him, that's me. Yeah. She's like, I posed for that almost 2,000 years ago. And you're like... Damn. Yeah, you know something's wrong with her because she's constantly giving herself injections. And then there's strange, like, black fluid dripping from her. Somebody mentions, do you smell that? And she's like, no. And then as soon as the person leaves, she sniffs herself and then gives herself another shot. So you know something's going on. And then eventually it all comes out. Yeah, she's a monster. She's some kind of weird almost like a chimera something basically every 20 years she needs to get pregnant and then her body will kind of consume the fetus and in doing so it'll give her half of the dna you know pretty much like a, how babies are made if you don't know boys and girls they take half of the mom's dna and half of the father's dna and boom you got a baby that's what she needs to do every 20 years. She needs a fresh infusion of DNA, and she will actually give birth to herself. I'm guessing. They don't show that, but they mention, I will be reborn. And when she gets reborn, she doesn't look the same. Because she has half of somebody else's DNA in her now. So she wouldn't look the same. So I do like that. It's not just her beauty has remained untouched throughout the ages and yeah you have all these pictures of her that's been done to death that's why they give her two different colored eyes so you can use that as a signifier whenever you see all these various women in these old 300 you know 500 800 year old paintings and stuff you know if they have a different colored eye that's probably her Another thing I love about this is once she does re eventually reveal all of this stuff to him, and it's not on purpose. No. When she first meets him, she tells him that she doesn't date. She wants to take him home, but we later realize that's because she's just trying to get pregnant. Yes. Because it's time for her to get pregnant again. But she doesn't date. She doesn't fall in love. You know, but he falls in love with her. And she ends up breaking up with him because she knows what's coming. And yeah, she doesn't want, she's a monster because she is technically not human. <laughs> and, you know, she does various things, but not necessarily because she's evil, even she wants to. Like, there is somebody who dies to her, but that was almost like a accident. Well, yeah, and she says when it gets close to time... She can't control she herself. She starts killing things, and she can't help herself. This is not something she wants to do. No. She's not an evil person. But he finds out about it inadvertently because he doesn't want to let her go, so he just kind of pops by her her apartment and sees her... Like in mid-transformation. Yeah, it's pretty gnarly looking. Yeah, it's like 
That's why I came up with Chimera, because it's like five different animals all mushed together. And she's like, oh, it's from our evolutionary past. But I thought I saw a goat leg in there, and I'm pretty sure we don't have goat in us. But, you know, who knows, whatever. It's just a weird conglomerate of things. He freaks the hell out, but he's already found one of her shots and he asked her about it, thinking she might be a drug addict. And she's like, no, I have a medical condition and I need my shot. And he's like, oh, okay, fine. So when he goes in there, he finds her on the floor freaking out, half monster, half woman. She's reaching for the shot, but she can't get to it. He runs over, grabs it, and sticks it in her. So, you know, that was pretty nice of him. Well, yeah, and he still, he stuck around yeah. even after that. So that's true love right there. Yes. I mean, he really does love her, and it's only been about five days that they've known each other. But you know what that's like, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> Some of my favorite parts about this film are... <laughs> what? No, nothing. <laughs> okay, go ahead. <laughs> Some of my favorite parts about this film are actually the conversations that they have when she's taking him around. She takes him to Naples and he's like, I've never been inside a church. And she's like, oh, well, I haven't been inside this one since it's grand opening. <laughs> yeah. And it's an old stone church from like 400 years ago or something. But then they start talking about religion. Oh, just she shows him various things that from history that they start talking about religion and how he's like, well, what do you know about this? And those are my favorite conversations. I absolutely love the amount of thought that they put into this. It's a supernatural romance. More than any sort of horror movie, I think. That's what it is. It's somebody falling in love with a beautiful woman who just happens to be a monster and who's been living for 2,000 years. And she, one of the, I think, coolest things is Before the end, she takes him to where she grew up, which is... Pompeii. Is it Pompeii? Is it actually Pompeii? uh, Something like that. But if it's not... Because I actually didn't hear what she said, or I didn't hear if she said it was technically Pompeii or not, but it's the same thing. It was a little tiny village next to a volcano. The volcano erupted, covered everybody in ash, and so X number of years later, they found all the bodies mummified and ash and stuff. And they, well, they injected them with plaster. And so now what you have are the plaster forms of these actual people who were there thousands of years ago, which is exactly Pompeii. So I'm assuming it must be Pompeii. And she takes him to her father and her mother and her little brother. Or sister, I don't know. You see their where their bodies were, the little cat, the cast forms, plaster forms of their bodies. And that is so sad. Yeah. You know, but, and they're thousands of years old. And it's just, it's, I don't know. It's very cool. I just love, I mean, that's one thing I do love about the writing of Vincent and Moorhead too. And the filmmaking is that they do put a lot of thought into everything they do. And they, their stories are so well constructed. Oh yeah. And I think this is another one. It is just really well constructed. And he's trying to tell her the whole time. He's like, so how do you, how do you choose whether to use, he's like, well, what would happen if you used your adult stem cells rather than the fetal stem cells? It's very scientific, at least of the times where essentially, yeah, she 
gains immortality because she consumes the fetish's stem cells or something like that. She's been looking into this for like 2,000 years, and she says, you know, I've always believed in the science, so she's trying to figure out her own who she is, what she is, you know, the rules that go along with that. But uh, she can only do so much, and it's not like there's a textbook on that. Well, and he's like, what would happen if you used your adult cells rather than the fetal cells? And she says, well, if I were to do that, then I would not be reborn. I would stop being young for, I, you know, she would have a, she normal, would have life. a normal life and yeah. she would eventually die. And so he's in love with her. He wants her to stay with him. He wants her to choose this, but she can't. And she tells him, she's like... I can't choose, my body chooses, and the best I can figure is that it's based on oxytocin, which is what you get when you're we in get love when you and... fall in love. So she's like, you know, you know I don't love you. Well, she comes by that idea because her mom was the right. same kind of creature she was. And she ended up giving up her eternal yes. life to be with her father. So Because when the volcano blew up, she was a little girl. She was in that, too. Mm -hmm. And he even asked her, how'd you survive? And she's like, yeah, it wasn't easy and it hurt. But part of her immortality is she heals. She constantly regenerates and stuff like that. But her mom did not because she chose a human life to be with her human husband and child or children, I guess. And so, yeah, she had to pay the price. But the cool thing about that is, and that's, I think, what makes the ending that much more beautiful, is that you don't choose. Yeah, it's not like you can... You can't pick. Your body chooses for you. Which I like, because when she first said, instead of consuming the fetus cells, and I could consume my adult cells, but this would... And I'm sitting there thinking, how can you decide that? How can you tell your body what to do? Okay, body... I want to eat this baby and I want to live for the next, you know, 20 years before I have to do it again. And then all of a sudden, okay, body, I want to have a nice mortal life and be normal. Bodies don't work that way. Bodies do what they're going to do. Right. And if she falls in love and produces ox- enough oxytocin. Then it will then do it for her. It will do it for her. And so she keeps telling him, I don't love you. I don't love you. I yeah, don't love you. Yeah, she's pushing him away mm-hmm. because she wants to make sure she doesn't love him. And then when you finally get to the end of them together, they're, she's like, I have like maybe one more day. So they decide to spend the day together. And she's like, you probably don't want to be around at the very end because I'm going to get really nasty. And what's going to happen? It's going to be big. It's going to be you know, have sharp teeth. It's going to rip things apart it's gonna she's like yeah just run away yeah run if you see me transforming run and i love the way they film this too because we're it's the sun is rising yeah because they spent all night together it's dawn and he's sitting on a wall and she kind of lays her head in his lap and she's like tell me more about the finite meaning how it feels to live a finite life yeah. versus knowing that you're going to go on and on and on. And so he starts going over the different, you know, like the things that you think about or don't think about when you're living a finite life. And it's fo- the camera is focused solely on him. You hear all this squishiness and like... Yeah, uh, bones cracking. You know, and, and you're like, oh shit, you know, she's... But then 
it pan the camera pans back it pulls back and gets both of them in the frame and she is the same yep. and she's laying in his lap which means that she loved him yes Aww. and so her <laughs> her body has chosen to stay with him yeah. and i got to tell you i love his character i do he is such a good yeah. person he's he's just a good guy yeah. and i i feel for him you you he had a shitty life as, you know, he's an orphan now. He watched his mom die literally holding her hand. He lost his job. The police are after him. Both he, had at home. To, he was going to Berkeley and he had to come home and yeah. take care of his mother. I mean, he just, so nothing is going the way yeah, he He's had a lot of bullshit in his life. So I'm glad he found that. And they're together. And if he ever divorces her, he's a dick. <laughs> Oh, that would just be... That would be horrible. That would be horrible. It's like, dude, you better fucking be for real. (laughs) To death do us part. I don't know. I mean, could you give up? If you'd been living for thousands of years, could you give that up for someone? And she even says at one point, she's like, I'm not about to give up you know, thousands of years over a guy I've known for five days. Yeah. <laughs> well, and she, you know, I'm afraid of dying. She says that numerous times. But I, the whole point is she didn't consciously choose that. Right. She just, she fell in love and this is what happens. That's like the best example of that because you know it's real. No, that's true. Yeah, he can't ever doubt her. So, yeah, again, this ain't really a horror movie. There's some spooky stuff occasionally. There's some body horror, I guess. There's some neat effects. There's, I think, one death. One, of course, typical American asshole <laughs> comes up on her when she's freaking out. And I just, it this guy is like, hey, how much for you to suck my dick? And just says, like, oh, Jesus Christ. They really want to make sure... You don't feel bad for him when he dies. Yeah. You're supposed to feel bad for her and what she's going through. Right. So, uh. And we've seen this guy a couple of times randomly in the, the town. He's a typical obnoxious just, American tourist. He's a douche. Yeah. And so, yeah, they make it, they make it very difficult <laughs> for you to blame her for what she does. Because you notice she bit his dick off. Did she? When they find him. His dick is gone. Ah, I didn't notice that. I saw that his guts were all opened up, but I wasn't paying attention to his nether regions, I guess. Well, I just noticed a big giant hole in his (laughs) crotch and then blood everywhere. And I'm like, oh, look at that. Well, good. He deserved it. (laughs) But yeah, this was a, it's a very good movie. The acting is really good. The direction is spot on. The locations are amazing because, you know, it's Italy. It's I I don't know if there's a bad-looking spot in Italy, at least not to these American eyes. I'm sure if I lived there, I'd probably go, God, I'm sick of this place. But it just it looks all picturesque. I mean, it's a tourist town, so of course it's going to look amazing. It reminds me of Greece. Yeah, very well. It's Italy. It ain't that far away from it. So. <laughs> Hell, they even stole their culture from Greece, but shh, don't tell them that. I also like that throughout this, he has managed to stay in town because he got a job as a farmer um, with an old farmer who is like has a room for work. So he goes to work for him so he can have his room and he, you know, forms a friendly relationship with this older man. And, you know, this older man had a wife who is now passed away. 
was very much in love. Mm-hmm. I think that's obvious. And he misses her. And at one point, he asks him, like, do you ever, like, do you ever see anybody you want to talk to? Or do you ever ask anybody out? Or you should ask somebody out. And the old man's like, no, I can't. You know, my wife. And I'm like, oh. Yeah. And I think that's part of the reason Evan sees him still at the church praying or talking to his deceased wife, holding a picture of her. And, you know, it, again, it just reinforces, yes, this is real for him. I mean, because the woman is giving up immortality, and that's a big thing and all that. But Evan is in love with a monster. That's pretty scary, too. <laughs> Who knows? She could have a bad, you know, day and just freak out and literally bite your head off. Well, she did snap at him yeah. once, and... You know, that was kind of scary. <laughs> but I do like this movie because it's, you know, it's the perfect example of love conquers all. It is. I think it's a beautiful story. It makes me cry. And honestly, the first time we watched it, I didn't really like it all that much. Years ago when it first came out, I have no idea why. I don't remember what I did or didn't like about it. I just remember not loving it. But this time, I did. I remember I liked it, but I didn't think it was anything special. Uh, This time around, I really liked it. I didn't love it. I don't think it's a masterpiece or anything, but it's a very solid movie. And it is a thoroughly romantic movie that I can get behind, maybe because it has monsters in it. I don't know. But most romance movies, they're so sappy and they're so saccharine and they're so false. They do nothing but piss me off. This is... Despite the monster and all the strange, you know, craziness that goes along with having a monster in the movie, it's pretty real. The relationship seems real. The ideas behind it, it's it's not as formulaic as like a goddamn rom-com. Where it's like boy meets girl, boy and girl get in a fight. Then boy and girl comes back together at the end and they live happily ever after. This movie has, I mean, much more daunting hurdles to get over than just, you know, a love triangle or somebody getting a job in some distant location or, you know, any of the usual bullshit that goes along with romance movies now. This is literally a guy falls in love with somebody who's not human. Or they are mostly human 90% of the time, but it's that extra 10% of the time that really makes the difference. And, you know, what happens from there. And so, yeah, the guy is, he's coming to terms that, okay, I love this woman. She's a freaking monster, she could eat me, <laughs> or whatever, but whenever she's not in monster mode, she's great. She's smart, she's funny, she's beautiful, she's everything I want. And the woman has to come to terms with, am I going to really give up eternity for this guy? Yeah, she has an apartment in Paris, and... Yeah, she has like eight different apartments, you know? She starts listening She speaks them. like 12 different languages... Of course, I guess you would if you've been around for thousands of years and traveled all over. I love it. Yeah. I think it's great, and it's a beautiful film. And if you haven't seen it, I recommend checking it out. Maybe watch it with your loved one. Oh, yeah. Easily. And I think if you compare both this movie and The Hunger, and you're going to rank them on which movie is more romantic, this movie wins by a landslide. Oh, it does. It does. It's just, I like that one of them, uh, that they're both about living eternal lives, but one of them is very tragic and one of them 
has a much more happy ending. And I think that's cool. Okay, anything else you want to say before we head over to Bumps in the Night? Mm, No. I hope everybody there, whether you're in a relationship or not, has a very good Valentine's Day. And even if you're single, know that we still love you. Yeah. Whenever I do that, I remind myself of uh, Linda from Evil Dead. Yeah. Yeah. I can see that. (laughs) Okay, we'll be right back. Bumps in a night. Okay, welcome to an only lovers left alive edition of Bumps in the Night. Uh, This time we're going to be talking about 10 creepy facts about Valentine's Day. Ooh, nice. Now, for those of you who don't know, um, as far as the origins of Valentine's Day is concerned, we really don't know. Now, the Catholic Church recognizes three different saints called Valentine. The most common belief is that there was a Valentine who was alive when Claudius was reigning, uh, Emperor Claudius, in Rome. And Claudius didn't think that soldiers should get married during wartime. Well, it kind of makes sense. He thought that there would be, you know, they'd be more effective soldiers if they had no family. Valentine didn't like that because he felt, one, the government has no right telling people who they can marry and when. Hey, that's a novel idea. Yeah, (laughs) how about that? And also, he had another reason, but I don't remember what it was. (laughs) So... (laughs) I love that it's so well-researched. Yeah, no, it is. I just, um... And then there was some other reason. There was some other reason. (laughs) He actually got thrown in jail for what he was doing. And then his, he fell in love with, or had feelings for one of the daughters of one of his jailers. He was eventually sentenced to a three part execution, which included being beaten, being stoned, and then being decapitated. But before (laughs) he went to his death, He wrote a letter to this girl that he was smitten with, and he signed it, Your Valentine. And that is widely considered to be the very first Valentine. Now, how accurate that is, who knows? Because we're talking about hundreds of years, so we don't really know. And like I said, there is no 100%. Valentine's Day started here, and this is why. Like, it's just a lot of conjecture. The other interesting thing that I thought was interesting (laughs) is that all three of those saints called Valentine were all supposedly martyred around February 14th. Uh, But then there's also the connection to Lupercalia, the Roman holiday, which occurred from February 13th to, to February 15th, in which they would sacrifice one dog and one goat, and then they would take the hide and cut it into strips and then dip it in sacrificial blood, head out to the streets of Rome, and start 
slapping any woman. <laughs> Ooh, I like this one already. Or crop they found with these blood-soaked strips. Now, it's funny. Crops, women, whatever, we're just, we're beating everything. And it was supposed, it was a fertility rite. Mm. So if you, you know, if you slapped the crops with it, then your crops would grow. If you slapped the women with it, then Babies. they'd be real mad. Like, I don't <laughs> I would be, but apparently those women didn't mind. Uh, and then to end the festival, all of the, the women would place their names in an urn. And then the bachelors would all pick a name from that. And then those two people would be paired off. Oh, yeah. For the duration of the year. Bonk, bonk. And then often would end in, end in marriage, but it wouldn't be a marriage of love or even for monetary gain. It would just be totally random. That's kind of romantic. It I guess. Is? I mean, you know. You, what if you did end up falling in love with that person that you were randomly... It's kind of like a key party, I yeah. guess. <laughs> but, you know, I don't know. Now, of course, there is the theory that Valentine's Day, particularly because of the date, sprang from Lupercalia because you know how it is with the Catholic Church. Oh, yeah. Took a lot of lot. pagan holidays and turned them into Christian holidays. And, and a lot of pagan deities have turned them into part of the Christian mythology. Right. But from there, we will go on to top 10 creepy facts about Valentine's Day. Are you ready? I am ready. Creep me out. Okay, number 10, banned in some places. One of the biggest creepy facts about Valentine's Day is, is that it is not actually celebrated everywhere in the world. I'm not sure why that's creepy, but okay. Yeah, that's most holidays. However, more than just that, it is actually against the law in some countries. For example, Valentine's Day is banned in Saudi Arabia. The Commission for the Promotion of Virtue and the Prevention of Vice restricted the sale of roses and anything red. Those people are way too uptight. I don't really think that's so much creepy. It's just kind of jacked up, yeah. but you know. Uh, number nine, the origin of Valentine's Day. Oh, well, let's see what they say. One of the creepy facts about Valentine's Day is that no one really knows the origin of the holiday. The most popular theory about Valentine's Day origin is that Emperor Claudius II didn't want Roman men to marry during wartime. Oh, how about that? I think I heard this before. I know, it's very familiar. <laughs> Bishop Valentine went against his wishes and performed secret weddings. For this, Valentine was jailed and executed. While in jail, he wrote a note to the jailer's daughter, signing it from your Valentine. Gee, that sounds very familiar. Mm -hmm. uh, number eight, a blood origin. I'll bet this is going to talk about the sacrifices, but... And I thought you said blood orgy. Oh. Ooh, this just got good. <laughs> As stated previously, one of the creepy facts about Valentine's Day is that no one really knows the origins of the holiday. However, one thing that historians know is that its brutal and bloody origins were very different than the hearts and chocolates that we associate now with the holiday. One theory states that Valentine's Day originates from the Roman feast of Lupercalia, which was from February 13th to February 15th. So you just read this in advance. No, I didn't. <laughs> Liar. During the feast, women would be whipped in the belief that it would help them become fertile. See, Makes sense. clearly I didn't because they didn't mention the wheat fields or anything. 
I think you just made that up. Or the goat, or the dog. Yeah. You're a plagiarist. At number seven, Valentine's Day is big business. Yes. One of the creepy facts about Valentine's Day, I think they need to reassess their definition of the word creepy, (laughs) is that... Today, the holiday is not just about love anymore. In fact, it is actually really big business. About 55% of Americans celebrate Valentine's Day and spend an estimated $18.2 billion a year, including more than $1.7 billion on candy alone. On average, men spend $150 on Valentine's Day, and the women, just 74. Step it up, ladies. I am going to... Uh, refrain from commenting. Well, you better because you know that that is not true. But okay? just know I'm thinking it really hard right yeah, now. Okay. Uh, number six, birds and Valentine's Day. Birds and Valentine's Day go hand in hand. However, have you heard of all of the creepy facts about Valentine's Day that are associated with birds? People used to believe that if a woman saw a robin flying above you on Valentine's Day, she would end up marrying a sailor. Yeah, of course. What? Everybody knows robins mean sailors. You'd think it'd be like, I don't know, a seagull or something? (laughs) That is so random. Additionally, people believe if the woman saw a sparrow flying overhead, she would end up marrying poor, but at the same time be very happy. Lastly, if she saw a goldfinch flying overhead, she would marry a millionaire. Oh, naturally. Number five, Valentine's Day in the Middle Ages. Valentine's Day did not always have the same traditions and superstitions as we have today. In fact, one of the creepy facts about Valentine's Day comes from the Middle Ages. During this time, people believed that the first unmarried person of the opposite sex that you saw on Valentine's Day would become your spouse. Sounds like a good reason to stay in that day. I mean, maybe. And again, unless you think randomness is romantic. Number four, eight different St. Valentine's Day. And by the way, for all those people out there who say on loop that Valentine's Day was created by Hallmark, bullshit. <laughs> Let's see, number four, eight different St. Valentine's. Oh, they say eight. One of the creepy facts about Valentine's Day is that throughout history, there have been approximately eight St. Valentine's. Three of them had special feast days in their honor. The two St. Valentines who most likely inspired Valentine's Day are Valentine Valentine of Turney and Valentine of Rome, though some scholars speculate they're actually one person. Number three, the irony of King Henry VIII. Oh, Lord. On February 14, 1537, King Henry VIII declared Valentine's Day an official holiday. However, this brings us to one of the most ironic and creepy facts about Valentine's Day. King Henry VIII was famous for having many wives and then killing them when they didn't give him a son. As you well, do. that's not a creepy fact about Valentine's Day. I don't know. I have, this list is suspect. <laughs> but we do know that it has been officially a holiday since 1537. That's crazy. Mm. That's a long-ass time. Yes, it is. Number two, a lonely day. One of the creepy facts about... Va- I, 
I hate the repetitiveness of that, but anyway, about Valentine's Day is that, that many women actually send themselves flowers. In many cases, it might be due to the fact that they feel sad that they are single and no one is loving them. In fact, according to statistics, as much as 15% of women in the United States might send cards and flowers to themselves just so that they don't feel left out on Valentine's Day. Needless to say, this fact is a big knock on the commercial commercial of Valentine's Day. Oh, that's kind of sad. Don't be sad. Even if I'm telling you, even if you're single, don't be sad. It's that you can still have a really good time. Of course, you'll be alone. No, I mean, you can have it with your friends. Like I said, well, you'll hear it later, but I was talking about how my best friend and I used to hang out on Valentine's Day. If your friends are losers like you, you can all get together. (laughs) You're such a jerk. You can take this part out. (laughs) I'm not gonna. I'm not gonna. People are gonna know you're evil. (laughs) (laughs) Number one. Vintage Valentine's Day cards. One of the biggest creepy facts about... (laughs) They they don't know the meaning of the word creepy (laughs) about Valentine's Day is that in... (laughs) Is that... Is that in the mid-1900s, Valentine's Day cards were very aggressive and direct. (laughs) In fact, they took the idea of stealing someone's heart, quite literally, going so far as to depict scenes of kidnapping with guns or worse. All right, thanks so much. That was a great list. Oh, that's it? (laughs) Yeah, that's it. That was creepy. I will add something to it. Have you ever heard of a vinegar valentine? Mm, No. A vinegar valentine is... The opposite. So if you want someone to leave you alone, you would send them a vinegar valentine. And that goes back at least to the Victorian era. But you would, if if someone is like after you or bothering you or whatever, you know, romantically, you it's a, basically a fuck off card. <laughs> I like that. Yeah. I mean, I fortunately have never received one. And that's creepy. Yeah. Well, it's about as creepy as anything they thought was creepy. But anyway, there you go. Hopefully, you picked up something new that you didn't already know about Valentine's Day. And I actually did. I didn't realize it was 1537 when it was officially declared a holiday. No. I mean, that is sooner, earlier than I would have thought. Anything you want to add? Uh, nope. Okay, well then we're going to sail out of here and head on into our little minuscule Attack of the Colossal Collection. Attack of the Colossal Collection. 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 Okie dokie, it is time for Attack of the Colossal Collection. I have to admit, it's not going to be much of an attack this time and they're just kind of all that colossal yeah <laughs> they're just kind of creeping up to you <laughs> well we watched a lot of uh documentaries we did that aren't in alphabetical order we've actually covered them before so we just wanted i wanted to watch a number of them again yeah and uh we've been and new stuff too. yeah steadily watching stuff but just we need to start cracking on our collection again in earnest we do, but we have a handful of titles that we did get through and mm-hmm. we can chat about. First up, we have Dark Man from 1990. Yeah, this one actually should have come a little bit earlier. It was out of order on the shelf. That sometimes happens. So that's why we're getting to it now. 
This is a movie, Sam Raimi, everybody knows who he is, you know, back in the, well, 1990 and, you know, the late 80s, he really wanted to make a superhero movie. And he tried to make several of them, uh, some just old pulp heroes to some of the more modern heroes. And yes, eventually he would, you know, strike gold with Spider-Man and all that. But back during this time, he couldn't get the rights to anything. And he tried everything. Like I said, I think he wanted to do a Batman movie. He wanted to do this, that. He wanted to do, I think, one of the old, uh, like, the Phantom movies or something. He couldn't get the rights to that? No, he couldn't get the rights to anything. Poor so, Sam. Yeah. So what he did is he said, fuck it. He made up his own superhero. And, you know, because he's Sam Raimi, uh, it has a tinge of darkness there. A tinge? Uh, a tinge. <laughs> This is one of the first movies I remember seeing Liam Neeson in. Uh, me too, yeah. And uh, he plays our main guy, he's a professor, and he's trying to come up with a synthetic skin for burn victims, but it has a flaw. It can only exist for 99 minutes in light, sunlight, lamplight, whatever. But it can last longer in the dark. So, yeah, naturally stuff happens, bad guys mess him up, they leave him for dead, uh, his face is all jacked up, his body's all jacked up, so the doctors say, oh, we've cut his nerves so he can't feel any pain, but because of that, we have these wild surges of adrenaline that make him almost superhuman. So that's the angry. Yeah, that's the idea behind it. He don't feel pain, he's stronger than the average man. And because of his work with his synthetic skin, he suddenly becomes a master of disguise. And with a master of disguise, with all those powers, <laughs> he begins to dismantle the uh, organized crime mobsters who, you know, fucked him over. And of course, there's various other secrets and more betrayals and stuff like that. But it's just, it's a good, fun, ass-kicking action movie. Yeah. Uh, stars Larry Drake yep. as our main, main bad, bad guy. guy. And that's funny because we just talked about him in a different dark movie. Mm-hmm. But this is a very different character for him. There's a lot of humor here, as you would expect from Sam Raimi. I loved Liam Neeson in this role. It's got Frances McDormand, uh-huh. I think her name is. Yeah. Which is funny because we were just talking about how the Coen brothers yep. and the Raimis are friends. And Frances McDormand is well known for working with the Coen brothers mm-hmm. a lot. She's been in a lot of Coen brothers movies. So I think that that's probably the reason he used her here. Most notably when she won the Oscar for doing Fargo. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I mean, it's just it's a. Uh... Super, it's like more like a pulp superhero. He does have some minimal superpowers, but most of his stuff just comes from science, or he beats people up, he has guns, stuff like that. So he's a very low-level superhero. He's not like Superman and all that. And he's taking on mobsters and all that. And it's fun once he figures out his quick-change ability. They do a thing where... You get two guys going, no, it's not me, shoot him. No, I'm the real one, shoot him. And they do stuff like that all the time. Like, he'll impersonate somebody, 
and he'll rob from his boss. Then he'll take the money and put it in the guy's, the real guy's bedroom while he's sleeping. So when the boss comes, like, why'd you rob from us? I didn't. Oh, what's this? I don't know how I got there. Bang. So. I love that whole bit because he's like, I don't know where... I don't even know why I'm dressed. Yeah. <laughs> I was asleep. And of course, because it's Sam Raimi movie, you do get a little cameo of Bruce at the very, very end. But, you know, it's it's just a damn good movie. It's not really a horror movie at all, so don't go into it thinking that. But it is a, a dark-themed superhero that kicks some ass. So much so that both of us gave it a four out of five. Now, we go to a very much a lesser known movie. In fact, was this a first time watch for you? It was. And that's because I heard nothing but bad things about it when it came out. So I skipped it. I always thought it was middle of the road. And uh, that is Dark Ride from 2008. This was one of the first set of eight films in the whole Eight Films to Die For. It was the After Dark Horror Fest. For those who don't know, uh, Lionsgate was running this little horror promotion on the side. The After Dark Horror Fest. And they would spotlight a number of movies and then release them all on disc. And they did that a couple times. I want to say three or four yeah, I wish they still did it. Yeah. Most of them were good. Yeah, there were some really good movies. I mean, there were some bad ones, too. There always are. But most of them were much better than I would have thought. And basically, that's why I kept this one around for so long. Because it was part of the original eight. And they all go together. And I figured, eh, I might want to watch it sometime. So we watched it here. And it's basically Toby Hooper's The Fun House. With a little bit of House of a Thousand Corpses thrown in just for fun. Yeah, a little bit. Uh, there's a group of kids that are going around partying. And then one of them's like, hey, I know where there's a dark ride. And that's basically, well, what they called the fun house from the movie Fun House. It's, you know, like a haunted house attraction. A bunch of animatronic things jump out at you and go boo. And you're sitting in this roller coaster cart. And Could just, be a boat. Yeah. It depends on what kind of ride it is, but... And you're just following this track going along the way. That's what a dark ride is. Also, coincidentally, at this very same dark ride, there was a crazy guy. He killed two girls years ago. They put him in an asylum, and it just so happens he escaped right at the exact same time this new batch of kids decided, hey, let's spend the night in there which is never a good idea. And so naturally, yeah, it isn't. They go into the dark ride and they try to spend the night, but oops, there's a killer. And now they're locked in and now they're trying to get out. It's pretty basic. I think the thing that sets this apart from other movies like this is it has, oh, what's her name? Jamie Lynn Sigler. Sigler from The Sopranos. This is one of her first movie roles. It was really to, look, I'm more than just The Sopranos. And it's like, nah, you're really not. She was okay in this, but only just okay. You know what's funny is I actually interviewed her for this movie, and (laughs) I never watched it (laughs) at the time. Well, it's a pretty basic slasher. Again, it rips off, by and large, Funhouse. And the reason I mentioned uh, House of a Thousand Corpses is that 
it's really just one bit. They act, they pick up a hitchhiker. Yeah. And it's almost exactly the scene from I think it that's what it reminded me of anyway, the scene from House of a Thousand Corpses where they pick up baby. Yeah. On the side of the road and they're on their way to they're looking for Dr. Satan. These people are doing the dark ride. They, like, it just, I don't know. It, it kind of gave me those vibes. Yeah. It's a basic slasher. Um, some kills are lame. There are a few good kills. Uh, effects can range from meh to pretty good. I like the look of the killer in here, but even that is pretty basic. It's just a big guy wearing a, a statue of a baby. He, like, chipped the face off, and now he's wearing it. That makes sense. So it's like a doll's mask, I guess. I was annoyed by the acting in this to no end. Yeah, that's... Un- the acting isn't good. Even from Jamie Lynn, I'm from the Sopranos singular. Yeah. Because it just... Yeah. No, it was... She was bad. And she was like... I thought. Just, just to straight the up point, bad in this. To the point that we both thought that a lot of the lines in this movie must have been improv in other words, they really didn't have that tight of a script or hell. Maybe not even a script. And he just told people, you know, just talk amongst yourselves. You know, be be friendly, you know, joke and laugh. And so, yeah, they do that. But that stuff's never good. No, it always comes off very unnatural. Yes. Unless you have very talented actors. Yeah. and Which these people are not. I it, mean, they might be talented, but they're not up to that level. It just comes off like they were making it up as they were going along. And I hate that, but that's just the way it is. There was one performance that I thought was pretty good. And I can't remember the guy's name. Oh, but he was in other stuff. He was actually ends up being a big part of this movie or part of the story. You know, the one friend. Oh, yeah. The one. Yeah. The one that's, you know who I'm talking about. Who's the one? I can't say. Yeah, he was okay. And by and large, that's this movie in a nutshell. It's okay. It's not the worst slasher movie I've seen. It's far from the best. It's a decent, also-ran slasher, in my book. You liked it a little bit less than me. Yeah, yes. I was very irritated. That that does happen from time to time. You gave it a 2.5. Yeah. Which is between a, I didn't like it and I liked it. Me, I gave it a three, which is, I liked it because I'm a sucker for slasher films. Even if they're not very good. And this one, you know, again, it has lots of flaws and warts and everything else. But in the end, it is a slasher movie. The kid, you know, the actors are what they are. The killer is no great shakes, but he's not horrible either. There's some decent kills and, you know, that's pretty much all I want. I also thought the ending was very telegraphable. Mm, Yeah, you can see it coming, but I'm not going to hold that against it. Next, we have a more recent film. Oh, yeah. And that is A Dark Song from 2016. This is, I guess it's a British film. It uh, takes place in Wales. I don't know if it was actually filmed in Wales, but that's where the majority of it takes place. Starts out in London, then moves to Wales. Yes, But in this, a woman contacts a... Well, first we see her looking at homes out in the country. And she 
finds this huge it's virtually a castle <laughs> like this place is huge but it's a like and a, it's also isolated a beautiful manor that is isolated out in the in the welsh countryside and then we see her talking with a guy who it turns out he's i don't know like a spiritual guide or a medium or a fuck it i'm gonna call him a wizard oh well okay there you go we'll go with that he, he very much is this movie and i mentioned this when we watch it this time but even from the first time I watch it, it reminds me a lot of the Hellblazer comic books, which, if you're not in the know, that's where John Constantine comes from. Those books are always very sarcastic, very heavy in the occult, very dark, and, you know, dealing with magic and demons and angels and all that stuff. And that's this movie to a T. I mean, seriously, they could have took the guy out that she hires and replaced him with John Constantine and everything would have fit. Well, it really would have. There's actually the scene where he pushes her down into the bathtub. Yeah. And I was like, oh, oh I, guess she, I guess she needs to go to hell. Uh, and that was before you mentioned how it reminded you of Hellblazer. Yeah. I really like this movie. It's very simple. And I've said numerous times, I'm a fan of a simple movie if it's done Right. And that's what this movie is. I mean, there's basically only two people in it, and it's basically just one setting, one location. It's a big house, so there's multiple rooms, but like 90% of this movie is set in that house. And at least 98% of the movie is just these two people. And that's it. So this movie relies heavily on these two people being good actors, and thankfully, they are. As for the story, she hires this wizard because she wants to speak to her guardian angel. And he's like, okay, we can do that, but it's gonna be a minute. It's a long, involved, multi-month ritual. And I love that. Yeah. I love that this is not something that you can just wait for the next full moon to do or, you know, an equinox or something. No, this is a rite that takes months and yeah. you have to go into it. You have to pure. purify yourself and. Yeah, no sex, no drinking. from, you know, yeah, even coffee. You can't drink caffeine. I mean, and it's just, it's so involved. In it. And I love that. It's not just, a lot of times in magic is, you know, just, it's Harry Potter going abracadabra with his wand and then stuff happens. If you ever read real occult books, and I have, this is actually based off a real ritual. And it is this long and this involved. So I liked that whoever wrote this, they really paid attention to detail. You know, magic is supposed to be exceptionally hard to do. Because if it wasn't, everybody would do it. So, I mean, they're breaking all the boundaries and putting themselves in mortal peril just so she can talk to her angel because if she can do that she gets a wish and, and so does he he gets a wish for being the guy you know moving her through this thing she is the conduit she's the one who has to be pure and all that stuff but he's the one telling her what to do so they're a partnership and so the whole movie is them in this house for like multiple weeks or months and just doing what they're doing, maybe going insane from it. And also she keeps seeing things and hearing things and 
It's just it's a really good, slowish, um, as you say, a slow burn, but creepy movie. Oh, it's very creepy. I love the atmosphere. Yes. I love the fact that once they're in the house and he seals it, they, they cannot leave. leave. Yeah. Because if they attempt to leave before it's over, They're fuck everything they'll up. be stuck there. And Yeah, they'll break the spell so it won't work, and then they'll get fucked up from it. Um, they'll either be stuck in the house or this, that, or something else. It is a really good movie. Admittedly, like I said, it is a slow burn, but I don't have a problem with that. It kept me engaged from frame one. Uh, there are some secrets as to the reason this woman wants to do this and what she has in mind. And then you get stuff where the wizard guy basically tells her out front, look, we're going to have to cross through hell before we get anywhere close to heaven. So this is going to be hard. It's going to be scary. It is dangerous. But if you want to do this, we can do it. And he, she's paying him 80, 80 grand oh, yeah. to do it. Plus, she had to pay $10,000 for the rental on the house. Yep. I mean, it's just this is a very expensive thing. So my point being, she's whatever she's doing, she and you find driven. out. But she is, yeah, she is serious about it. Because there's stuff that she has to do to purify herself or to do this for the right or that. And it's... It's fucked up stuff, but she does it because she she is driven, and I like that. I also like that there is, at times in the film, is this real? Is he for real? Yeah. You know, is he, does he really know what he's doing? Is he fleecing her? Is it like, I don't know. It's, it's very, very good. If you haven't seen it, I definitely recommend it. Oh, yeah. If you do like black magic movies or, you know, witchcraft, voodoo, whatever that, and I love all that stuff, I think you'll really enjoy this one. So much so that we both give it a four out of five. Rolling, rolling, rolling. On with the witchcraft. <laughs> we next have Dark Summer. From... Yeah, we have a lot of movies that <laughs> begin with dark. <laughs> yeah, uh, we have Dark Summer from 2015. And this was made by my friend Paul Sollett, who also made Grace. Mm -hmm. And that's an excellent one. And this is all about a kid who gets put on house arrest over the summer because he has been cyber-stalking a classmate. And he's a creepy little perv. So he, you know, broke into her Facebook, broke into her various social media accounts, broke into her email, and really... He wasn't trying to do anything nefarious. He just wanted to get to know her better because for some reason... He's obsessed with this He suddenly became obsessed with her. Yeah. And he has two friends that come to visit him. And Peter Stormare plays his probation officer. And he's awesome. And he is great. I honestly have never seen him in a role that I didn't didn't love. Uh, So he's stuck in his house. His... We don't know where his dad is, and he neither has does he. Ankle monitor on. Yeah. So his he can't mom go anywhere. is away on business, so he's the only one in the house. His friends come over to visit him, even though they're really they're not, not supposed, supposed to, to but... but they do anyway. And things start to get a little bit weird. I'll begin with the kicking off point because it's early in the movie. Oh, I don't know. That is a surprise, maybe. I, I yeah. I would say it is. Okay. Well, let's just say there are supernatural horror in this movie. 
Uh, things are not what they seem to be. There's definitely something weird and other happening. And yeah, it's just like, uh, what was that movie about the woman who can't leave her house even though it's haunted? 100 feet. Yes, exactly. I mean, the whole idea is behind the ankle monitor thing is he can't leave. So... Even and obviously, though, even if you leave, and you can't exactly say, I left because my house is haunted, they're not going to yeah. believe you. I mean, there is one moment where he does say enough of this shit and just runs for it, but they quickly catch him and, you know, give him a second chance. But, yeah, he's obviously under the effect of something, but he doesn't know what. And he can't, A, run away from it, or B, go out to investigate it. So that's why, luckily, he has his two friends. They become his outside source. They're the two that can leave the house and go whatever and, you know, look into this and research that while he is stuck at home trying to defend himself from various supernatural things. It's a good movie. Again, it's a very small movie, very small cast, basically one location, but it's done very well. I do enjoy this movie a lot. I don't love it. I don't necessarily like our main character. He is explained further on, and there is some reason for him and what he's done and all that. Main character, by the way, is played by... can't remember his real name, but he was Paul in It Follows. Yeah, exactly. And uh, I liked him a lot better than that. Here, I just think he's okay. I do like his two friends a lot, and I do like uh, Stormier as the probation officer. So, you know, it's a good, solid, supernatural mystery movie. That's all we're going to say, because if you do watch it, we want you to be surprised and stuff. And there's a good chance you've probably never seen this movie, just because I don't hear anyone talk about it. No, I only found out about it when I did, because Paul made it. I got this in for review from yeah. IFC. And I was the one who was like, hey, look what I got. And you're like, oh, that's Paul's film. So, uh, yeah, it was kind of released without, you know, much fanfare. It didn't get written up or talked about nowhere near enough. I don't think it's anything great or, oh my God, original, but it's a good, solid film. I think it's definitely worth watching. Yes. And, you know, for a movie that is so hidden, it definitely shouldn't be. So what do you give this one? Oh, I give this one a four. And so do I. So we really liked it and we... We think you would too, so Dark Summer from uh, 2015. If you haven't seen it, check it out. And our last movie, yes, like we said, this is going to be a very truncated colossal collection. But our last movie is Dark Water from 2002. There is an American version of this movie that was done some years later. It has, oh, what's her name? Jennifer Connelly. Thank you. She's in it. That's not this movie. This is the original Japanese movie from 2002, and I always really like this one. I don't mind the American remake, but I think this original is better in all shapes and sizes. So we have this, and it's an excellent Blu-ray from Arrow, if you're ever interested. And we don't have the remake, just because... It doesn't really... It's not bad, but it's... You don't need it. It's a very faithful remake. It is. But, I don't know. I never found anything special from it. 
Whereas this one, I do like a lot. If you've never seen the story or heard about it, it's very sadly prophetic in one specific way. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Now, this was done many, many years before that tragic event happened, but it's eerie how life can imitate art. I'm not going to tell you what that thing is. Oh, I know, I hate that. Just teasing you and then denying you. But... If you don't know, that is a good part of the story, and it is a good part of this movie. And once you see what's going on and go, aha, so that's why you should be able to pick up on the real-life event that happened to mirror this movie a lot. As and if he still doesn't come to you, send us a message yeah, and we'll and tell we'll you. Tell you. <laughs> As for this movie, uh, there's a young woman. She just recently divorced her husband, who seems to be a real asshole. And she's trying to get out on her own with her daughter. She rents a little, really run-down apartment that's always leaking water. It's dirty. It's old. You know, but it's what she can afford. And then she tries to get a job and, you know, get her life back on track. Naturally, the father, the ex-husband, he's in there trying to mess around and just be a dick. But also, yeah, there's something haunting this place. And with a title like Dark Water, it's not a surprise that this movie looks like it was made in Seattle. <laughs> it just rains and rains and rains. Water plays a big part in this movie, as it should with a title like that. And the way it's always just creeping about and spreading, there's a little drip in the apartment they get, and then it just spreads and spreads and spreads until it's damn near like the whole apartment is raining. There is uh, ghostly apparitions in here, and some really effective scenes of tension and suspense. Yep, I quite like this. Was this a first time watch for you? <laughs> I still don't know. Uh, I know I, I saw the remake in the theater. Okay. And I want to say I watched this one after, but I can't swear to it because while we were watching it, I just couldn't be sure. I couldn't be sure if I if it was familiar because I'd seen it or if it was familiar because of the story. But I think this might have been my first time watch. Okay. I really don't know. What do you think of it? I really liked it. I thought it was very good, very atmospheric. I also think it's better than the American version. Not by a huge margin, just because it was a pretty faithful remake, yeah. and they did, a, they did a fine job. Yeah, I don't hate the remake. It's just, it's very unnecessary. It's almost too close to this movie, so it's like, well, why bother? Right. I'll just watch the original, which is everything the remake is, and then more. So. Yeah. So if you haven't seen it, I definitely recommend it, especially if you are a fan of Japanese horror. Oh, yes. It's one of the best J-horror movies out there, in my opinion. That's why I've always kept this one. Even if you don't like J-horror, it's just a good, creepy ghost story. So if you haven't seen it, I do say check it out. And yes, I mean, it's subtitled, so you have to read as the movie's going along, but I do recommend the original over the remake. As for this movie, what did you give it? 
I gave it a four. And I gave it a 4.5. I really like this one. It's one of my favorite J-Horrors, so it's a good enough one to stop on, I guess. And so, as promised, that was our handful of movies that we were going to talk about. (laughs) And I guess that's going to be it for this very special Valentine episode. Yes. I love you, baby. Aw. And I love you. Yay. (laughs) And we love our listeners. We do. And thank you so much for being out there, for hanging out with us all the time, for corresponding with us. It, It makes me so happy. Yes. And we do love you. We really do. do. I hope everyone had an incredible Valentine's Day. I'm one of those people that I've always loved Valentine's Day. When I was a kid, I loved the whole making your little mailbox at school and writing out the Valentine's and then going around and delivering the Valentine's. I've always loved Valentine candy. I think it's one of the best candy holidays outside of Halloween. I just, I hate the commercialism. I hate the corporate bullshit. I hate how this was such a made-up holiday just to make money. I'm one of those, you know... Cynics? Yeah. But none of that bothers me. Or maybe you could say I'm a cheapskate or whatever, or, you know, I, I don't like romance, or I don't know. But I don't think you need a special day to be romantic or... You don't need one, but I don't think there's anything wrong with it. I have always loved it. When even, whether I was single or with someone, I just always loved the holiday. And the commercialism part doesn't get to me. Like, it doesn't bother me. But I always made it a point to keep Valentine's Day simple. I don't need anything extravagant. For Valentine's Day, because my true gift is you. Mm-hmm. And I know, and you make Valentine's Day so much better because of it, but it is a bullshit holiday. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, but it is. Well, you get to spend it with me. Yeah, so that's, yeah. that is true. <laughs> and I sincerely hope that you guys have a great, whether you celebrate or not, just I hope it's a good day, period. And I guess we will see you next time. Okay, so it's my pick on what we're going to be covering next time. And to give you all a little heads up so you can follow along with this if you want to, I think I'm going to pick Everybody Knows I Love Cosmic Horror. And you should all know by now I love slashers. But another favorite genre of mine or subgenre is Haunted Houses. So I'm going to pick that. Haunted Houses. What does that mean to you, and what do you want to bring to the table? Well, I think I'm going to go old school with The Legend of Hell House from 1973. And, of course, that was the one I was going to pick. (laughs) Seriously. You know, I I keep doing that to you. Yes. Mainly because I love that book. I like the movie, not as much as the book, but we haven't seen it in a while, and I wanted to reappraise it and all that. But instead, since you've taken that one, fuck it. The gloves are coming off. I'm throwing down with the big boys. Okay. My pick, and it's definitely not hidden in any way, shape, or form, so we couldn't talk about it before, The Shining. Ooh. Yep. 
Alright. Everybody's seen that movie. At least everybody should have seen that movie. But it's one of my all-time favorites. Well, and I don't think you've ever gotten to talk about it, have you? No, not for, at least not for a while. And we did just recently watch the documentary. Yeah. Where- Two three seven. I love that. So I love much. that documentary so <laughs> it's much. It's one of my favorites. It has, well, it's it is about The Shining, the movie, but it's really not. It's all about crazy motherfuckers and obsession, and it is just it is awesome. If you've never seen Room Two Three Seven, go see it. If you're expecting a documentary to tell you all the ins and outs of how they made The Shining, you will be disappointed. But if you just want to see how so many people can watch the exact same thing and get totally different ideas from it and then become obsessed with those ideas Mm -hmm. and just the whole world revolves around this. Yeah, it's it's pretty nuts. Yeah, I love that. I thought you were going to go The Haunting because to... You know, juxtapose Legend of Hell House yeah. and The Haunting, which are virtually, the, I mean, they're based on two completely different novels, yes. except that Richard Matheson's novel is based on yeah. Shirley Jackson's novel. I mean, he outright said it. So but he it's the to, same fucking movie. He wanted to up the ante. Yeah. He wanted to make his house more evil. And I think he agreed, uh, he succeeded in that. I, I love yeah. the original Hell House, the novel. Oh, that is one of my all-time favorite books by one of my all-time favorite authors. Yeah. But, fuck it. I'm doing The Shining. I, You know what? I don't have a problem with that. I can always Even if you that did, thing. it was tough shit. I'm yeah. doing The Shining. <laughs> All right. Well, there you go, guys. That's your homework for next time. It's so liberating being able to pick whatever the hell I want. I know. It's fun. <laughs> uh, the Legend of Hell House from 1973, which I'm actually hoping is hidden for some people out there. Yeah. And The Shining from 1980, which hopefully is not hidden from people. Out there. If it is, I mean, you always get those people who, you know, I just never watched this. And yeah. people go, what? I just never got around to it. Well, if you, if that's your case with The Shining, now you have a reason to watch it. There you go. And We've I, just given you a reason. Yeah. And I can't wait to get to both of them because I do love haunted house movies. So do I. Okay, well, that'll be fun. And we will see you guys in a couple of weeks. Bye-bye, everyone. Thanks for listening. Bye. Thank you for visiting the House of Salmons. We hope to see you back very soon. Until then, come chat with Brian and me on our Facebook group page at Horror in the House of Salmons. And if you like what we do here and want to hear some bonus episodes, consider being a patron at patreon.com slash house of salmons. Special thanks to Rick Morgan for composing our theme music.